We're live. Hey there, everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Actual Eye Podcast. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. We are two friends, two brothers in musical and artistic arms uh, who together are going through this uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis series by Professor John Pervaki out of University of Toronto. This is our third Reflections on our first 10 episodes thus yeah. far. <laughs> so we've been doing these watch-alongs with each episode as we go. I got to make sure we're going live on Facebook as I speak. That's a function over here. All yeah. things happening behind yeah. the scenes you're seeing in the front. So yeah, this is the uh, third episode of our reflections of the first 10 episode where we're summing up uh our insights on the first 10 episodes Indeed. Uh, we had a nice long one got a little loosey-goosey but you know it's important every now and again when you're studying you should uh you know have a study party if you will true uh, you know bust out the mountain dew and funyuns and <laughs> yes 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 Keep uh, talking for me, DJ, while I get this rolling here. I'm getting distracted watching him, uh, watching him do that. So, yeah. yeah. Reflections thus far. Yeah, and we're using uh, notes for, from, what's his name? I need to get glasses. Oh, this is Mark Mulvey. Mark Mulvey's And notes. on Mark Mulvey's Medium, so you go to markmulvey.medium.com, you can find uh, great notes summarizing each episode of this immense 50 lecture series, which I actually have to say i feel it's quite worthwhile for just just about everybody out yeah. there to have a chance to to get uh to get into yeah it's good for your brain it is well it's it's helpful it's good for your spirit it's helpful in, in understanding why humanity is in these times of social strife um you know social breakdown increasing discord entrenched divides tribalism all of that Some yo 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 what's here. up facebook Welcome back to Actual Lie. We are rolling. Yep, We're looks rolling. like it's happening. This is our third reflection video Ooh. on the first ten episodes. Indeed. And indeed. We're going to try to get. We're trying. What is it? Episode three to ten that we got to well, get through. Well, yeah, we we yeah. got through three. Got through and three. And so okay. now we got to go four All through right. ten. As I remember, I hope that's right. Uh, no, I think no, that's we did. right. We made yeah. It to three. yeah. And so, um, yeah, this is our third Reflections on the first 10 episodes of John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. Really, this has given ourselves a chance to catch up with ourselves and with all of you, anyone that finds this along the way. Uh, perhaps this gives you a chance to catch up as well with the yeah. previous episodes in the series. I try and make sure I'm including that link wherever I share these live streams. Mm-hmm. We're happening live on Twitch, on Facebook, and YouTube. But you can just go straight onto YouTube and search Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and you'll find John Verveke's yep. Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. John Verveke is a professor out of Toronto that put together this 50-part lecture series for the world, for all of us, to understand how we got to what he has termed the Meaning Crisis, this time of social breakdown and increasing division and sense of meaninglessness, as well as... At the same time, that's like the dark side of the meaning crisis. Mm-hmm. On the bright side of it, there is this increasing interest in mindfulness practices, meditation, Eastern and Western mysticism uh, occurring here in the West and around the world. But it's certainly influencing culture here and elsewhere. And 
So, so you see that thing happening. That's kind of the yin and yang of the of the meaning crisis that humanity is in, and how may we awaken from the meaning crisis is the subject of the lecture series, which we've been covering and doing these watch-alongs with the previous ten episodes. Yeah. Um, well, hopefully that catches you all yeah, up. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? And whether or not we know what's happening, we still feel something, and we're going to inevitably be drawn to no doubt. A lot of different things that claim to be remedies and not and whatnot. And I think what this series goes over, if anything, can just help you learn how your mind works, how you gather things, and how not to be prone to, the, this is an actual term, the yeah, bullshit. Technically. Yeah, so forgive me. It, it's but a it's psychological not, it's, term, yeah. though. It's a way that we can lie to ourselves. But it's, yeah. it's clever. It's clever because you know it's, it's bullshit. Yeah. When you see bullshit, you know it's bullshit, but sometimes bullshit is super salient. Yeah. Like the like the commercial that shows the very attractive person with the car and the beautiful sunset that they've achieved, that they've found, and that you're gonna get all of this great Zen paradisal feeling from buying this car. Yeah, right. It'll solve all your problems. You'll have everything yeah, that so you want. So they're trying to sell us being mode needs with having mode. And so we can confuse having mode and being mode. That's called modal confusion. I got a, I got a good story. Um, That's a big part of that, how we got ourselves into a meaning crisis. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, every year I watch the, uh, what is it, the Christmas story? You shoot your eye out, kid. Well, you know, so Ralphie's all excited because he got his uh, whatever little, little Annie or whatever decoder ring thing. And he's so excited, and you know, so now he could get the secret messages on the radio, and he wrote them all down, and it like you know he translated it painstakingly, and it just said, "Remember to drink your Ovaltine," and that was the moment he realized it was all bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it was pretty cool though, you know. What well, family tradition, yeah, a Christmas story, but you know, since watching or since I guess watching this series. <clears throat> Uh, you notice Christmas little things like that that are just hidden in, in the old movies and the old media, like little lessons. Truth. And, you know, with a good story, like in this case, you know, it's the kid coming to realization of, you know, uh, well, the, the the bullshit of everything. Um, right. And then he lost hope because he didn't think he was going to get it, but then he got the gun, and then he shot his eye out, and then he had to come up with a story, and then, you know... <laughs> There used to be really good, you know, lessons in old movies and stuff. What happened? Good question. Oh yeah, that's right. We, we, you know, We've kind of lost crisis. ourselves a little bit. It's still out there, though. There's there's still sure. great media, um, but there is a lot of really weird stuff right now as mm -hmm. well. That's just confusing as we try and find ourselves. Yeah. Well, there's the idea of the the modern audience too, and modern sensibilities, which. Like, to a certain extent, yeah, but, like, for the most part, we're still driven by the same stories and the same, you know, whether they're hero stories or journeying stories or this, that, or the other. And that, you know, what makes a story good is what virtues does it encode in the story. So when you live through the story, it's almost like going through the the path of gaining these virtues as the hero gains the virtues. Mm -hmm. You know? That's why they appeal to us so much. We think and live mm -hmm. and act through story-making minds. It's like yeah. the the future of our consciousness that yeah, stories gives are, us a sense of value to everything. It's an it's an old psychotechnology, but then with 
the adaptation of being able to write things down. Now you could write down a story into a book and well, now you can film a story or you can make a play or, you know, Hey, you can make it all out of 3d if you want to now, but it's just, uh, what do they call it? Exaptation, exacting, you know, the original psychotechnology of telling a story to relate. Now you can you're using use that different techno psychotechnology. John Verbeke's terminology there, I see. Try, trying to exacting. Like, the exacting well, term is something that we learned. Yeah, uh, uh, about that that describes how the mm -hmm. brain can take a capacity to do one thing, and like not just the brain, the but, tongue, but, which but, is to taste and check for poison and to move things around yeah. the mouth. We've used to learn to speak and form language, and so we're doing so it. So you can exact. The brain is really good at taking. And we're doing that process with, like, you know, psychotechnology on top of psychotechnology. Because first it starts out with, you know, the ability to tell the story. And then the ability to make it into literature. Mm -hmm. You know, literacy. Yeah, language. Then being able to tell and, the story and speak it. And then, and then we're now merging it with high-level technologies that aren't just psychotechnologies. But then think about games. We've taken stories into games as well. So now we're back to the shaman end of things and you're being the deer or being the hunter or mm. being the whatever mm. so it's like they're all building off on top of each other Acting. and then yeah we love to act out yeah. and play through things yeah and like the the play. like to practice challenges because mm. and it's i love this idea that or this aspect of human reality that we get these endorphin rushes when we're tuning into our environments really well mm -hmm. it's like this yes response this physical response in our biology that we get of po uh, pleasure positive chemicals endorphins releasing when you're on the right track when you're taking good care of yourself um when you're being loving towards others you get lots of that good old oxytocin yeah don't forget to get your daily grump out either grump once a day and you'll live longer well that's where the workout comes in right yeah you know just get well Movement and also practice if you if you externalize the grump for a moment just music like, is meh. good for that Writing art is really good for that. Mm. Some way to, yeah, take the bullshit and turn it into yeah, something beautiful. A quick grump, because if it builds up too long inside, then it just becomes this protracted moaning on and on and on about something. But you get a grump, like, you know, something happens and you just go, eh, rat around, walk off. As I find myself doing that, I'm just, rat around, rat around, rat around. just get the grump out. Yeah, just get it out. Yeah, get it out and then be done with it, right? Some of the happiest people I, like I know are some of the grumpiest people I know. There's something about that. It's the hanging on to that, rah, 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 yeah. and letting it consume you. That, yeah, that, that gets painful. Yeah, well, but we can all tools, do that. We're all prone to that, you know. It's all tools, and we don't want to overuse mm -hmm. certain tools when we could use other tools. Mm -hmm. You might hurt yourself using certain tools that you shouldn't be using for that task. Yeah, kind of like so. Well. Gotta be we'll mindful. save that. We'll save it till we get to that episode because I don't want to cross over like too far down. But it's gonna get to the scaling up and scaling down part. But I think I'll wait for when we get there. Yeah, yeah, we'll get there. All right, guys, so we're gonna jump into it. This is uh, covering "Awakening from the Meaning Crisis" by John Berbeke. Oh, hit that be right back channel. Hey, here we go. Oh no, you go right back. We're right back. I like the way that John lays these notes out. This quote here is on point. Wisdom is keeping our truth machinery and irrelevance machinery tightly coupled together 
so you don't bullshit yourself. Your truth machinery and your relevance machinery. So how your brain realizes what is relevant, understanding that process, and then the machinery by which we come to comprehend what is true. Mm-hmm. So was as true as we can get it. So uh, we begin with ancient Greece. Mm-hmm. And this world where people believed that there were certain like oracles that who could speak to the gods. People could speak to the gods through oracles. Mark notes. Um, these notes by Mark Mulvey here. And we're going to utilize these to help guide our way through. One of the most important was at Delphi. A woman, Pythia, who would sit in a cave... Remember, shamanism is associated with caves, possibly with intoxicating gases present. <laughs> or she was eating eucalyptus leaves, possibly. Or all of or it. Or drinking some kind of psychedelic blue lotus tea, you know. And people would come and pose questions to her. And she would speak on behalf of the gods. So we got a picture, actually. So this person was really important. And this, people There's take Pythia. her seriously. This, You know, this, it's, you know. Not some guy online. This is like, you know, the pinnacle of the truth is this oracle person. So this is how, yeah, this yeah. is how they could speak to the gods. This was really the only way. And this leads us into the story of, uh, as they knew it, was it Socrates? Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. The thing about being an oracle is, this is a quote of John Vervakis. The thing about being an oracle is if you want to stay in business, you don't want to give specific answers. So a bunch of Socrates' friends, here's a story. They go to the oracle, they ask questions about Socrates. Is there anyone wiser than Socrates, they ask. And the oracle answers, no. A crystal clear answer. Yeah, and that's rare because, you know, like in order to be right all the time, you have to be very vague. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of vagary, like, you know, like white goose settles during a blue moon and a yada, yada, yada. Right. And this was a resounding no. No. No, there is no one. When told of this, Socrates isn't self-congratulatory, so his friends go back and they tell him. And this is telling, given that we're living in an age of confirmation porn, really. Uh, the accelerating and exacerbation of our collective tendency to seek confirmation of things we already want, we already believe or want to believe. So confirmation bias, basically. The pernicious confirmation bias. Yeah, it's almost like an addictive drug too. You know, you get that dopamine blast when you find, you know, find the thing supporting your thing. Yeah, um, yeah. Whether it be doom scrolling or you know the, look, I'm right. This thing proves it. Mm-hmm. Or even to the opposite of that, if it's not this it's a sense this of self security, you yeah. know, it's a false sense of self security. Well, so there, there, you're bullshitting yourself. Well, and and perhaps it really comes from like our tendency. We really want to know what's true and what is real because when we don't have a grasp of what's true or real it's horrific it's terrifying mm-hmm. it scares us but when we got something yeah. that we think is yeah. real, we hold we on, to, hold on it. to it yes. we're afraid to look at anything else yeah. that could counter it yes. because we think that we've got at least a firm hold on reality mm-hmm. now even if it's a bad thing you know yeah. even if it's like some nihilistic viewpoint on reality people mm-hmm. get very certain yeah. that certainty closes closes us off to new information that it does so socrates uh he got himself in trouble because for him, the gods represented 
moral exemplars, which they weren't before at this point to people. Yeah, the gods were flawed. Were very powerful. They were philanderers mm-hmm. and egotists, and you know, but just yeah, they, downright they nasty people sometimes. Yeah, they <laughs> certainly, were, certainly weren't well, moral exemplars. I like to think of it like this: the gods at that point in time were there to represent things within us like you we have were just trying to understand why do storms happen what are yeah, the stars so there's the gods within us gods like you know the aphrodite and love and all that stuff and then you have the you know gods associated with anger and warfare and you have gods associated with this that or the other mm-hmm. so you know we were making gods of our components within us whereas socrates yeah. he switched to thinking well no gods if they're so much greater and bigger mm-hmm. they should have much bigger values than we they do s- they switched that yeah yeah because like to well it's like you know celebrity and political celebrity um if you have terrible character and you're on top you can reap terrible um results mm-hmm. and well sure. i think socrates was a man that realized the world actually wasn't on a terrible trajectory tra- trajectory it wasn't like you know the gods were actively trying to destroy us it was you know like if they're in order well, we were realizing our own yeah. responsibility yeah we were starting to realize the cost mm-hmm. effect we were having on our environments yeah. and, and the, well, that's a big shift as we became more and more powerful how we look at god really shows where we were at with our understanding mm-hmm. of ourselves in nature in relationship to our yes. universe and our world yes and by powerful i mean we became more and more effective at mm-hmm. manipulating our environments and sure. large groups of people were able to coordinate Yes, and yeah. create larger and larger projects, cities, temples, and mm-hmm. massive, complex structures and industries, and so on. Mm-hmm. All of this because we developed language and the series of psychotechnologies, including the way that our brains think at this point in terms of story. Yeah, even yeah, and, so and the idea of placeholder things like the token. You know, this thing can hold the place for an idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, was very important, not just for money, but also for like you know religious artifact and other things like that. This represents the idea of a god. And measure things, yeah. and then we started to measure ourselves psychologically according to how we pair or match up against other people. And we started to think in a in a less interconnected, more tribal orientation, mm-hmm. previous tribal orientation, into a more. It's a, it was a totally different new mm-hmm. opening. And this was like the start of the era. Of, this, but this is also the formation of our misidentification with what we are. Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're this life function and this yeah. awareness. But there's this projection of a personality that we live through and mm-hmm. we act through. And that is a jumble of thoughts. And that thing is in constant flux. You know, that thing is malleable. That thing is yeah, that thing is formable. It's you not know? just an A, B, C relationship. It's an A, B to no. C back to A to Yeah, B we have certain dispositions that we yeah. can be born with to some degree, but even those things can be changed mm-hmm. within oneself because our brains are so plastic and meaning that we are constantly reforming our networks and growing new networks yeah. and brain cells as we go. And that's how we're able to exact. We can take a neural network that's made for one Thing, and for something entirely different, we can actually turn it into something as complex as speaking, you know, like the tongue and so previous example. So let's jump back, jump back in here. For Socrates, the gods represent moral exemplars, ways in which we can self-transcend and morally improve. So something to aim and something greater than even we are. That's the ultimate worship, virtue. Like a god. Yeah, something mm-hmm. worthy of worship, an ideal worthy of worship. For us to all be able mm-hmm. to be this good, this loving, this great, this wise, all of these things, what could we do? How much more peaceful and, and loving and joyful would life be? It's, uh, well, so there's this, 
This was a big deal, though. It's axiomatic that the gods cannot lie to him. And yet he is resistant to the oracle's answer. He's convinced he is not wise. Yes. So Socrates made the quote, the idea, know thyself, his personal slogan for life. This phrase was inscribed at the side of the Delphic Oracle. Know thyself means understand how you operate, not your autobiography, so to speak, but your owner's manual. Socrates thought that this kind of self-knowledge was, was essential. So now he faces a dilemma. How can he be the wisest human being when he knows he is not wise? Socrates begins a quest then to find out how both of these could be true at the same time. He walks around asking questions of people to try to get to the bottom of things. Socrates, and here he is utilizing what later becomes known as the Socratic method, a technique of asking questions in order to draw someone out. Their, their true authenticity he would try and draw out. The two groups of people credited with being wise were the natural philosophers in this time of ancient Greece and the sophists. Pythagoras actually invented the word philosophy, which comes from philia for friendship, love, like communal love, friendship, love, and sophia, wisdom. So this is like a communal love of wisdom. He created community around him to pursue wisdom. A philosopher is someone who, in concert with others, is a lover of wisdom. That's very succinct. That's a quote from Verveke there. So Thales is a, the first natural philosopher we know of. And since what remains is so fragmentary, it can basically be summarized in three sentences. All is the moist. The lodestone has psyche. Everything is filled with gods. So this this was the first time that human beings here in the West were trying to figure out what, what are the constituent it? elements of life? What is it made of? So how would you describe all is the moist? Uh, well, so all is moist is every everything has the characteristic has a certain type of characteristic that is like water. You know, metal you heat it up to a certain extent, it is like water. Mm-hmm. Earth, if you vibrate it enough, is like water. Right. Um, and so then, if you scale that down, well, everything must be made up of say water. Yeah, there's Thinking, water above that comes from above. There's water below when you drill. Yeah, down. and the idea of you know water being pure, like mm-hmm. you pur- purify so things like with water. If, yeah, so it seems like it's the down, most maybe fundamental. Maybe it does ultimately turn into water. Yeah, yeah this is their best idea at the and time. And then the logo has psyche. Psyche is the ability to manipulate and, and like say in this case move something directly, but to manipulate to affect mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to almost like you know because your psyche yeah. helps you interact and affect. Yes, in in the world. Um, so a, lo- what a, a lodestone, if, if you know people aren't familiar with what that is, that's basically just a, a natural magnetic rock mm. that has you know varying degrees of magnetics but isn't like the modern magnets we have. It's just enough that you can notice, oh, this has an effect on iron things. Yes. So these natural philosophers, this represents a fundamental change in human cognition. This is from my notes here. I remember yeah. when Verbeke said this. Well, this is so like- we're noticing, okay – Humans have gotten themselves to this point to now they're inquiring into the fundamental nature of reality. And using a scientific use, method. You, you, the you speaking know, of rationality. Yeah, yeah rational. A scientific method, indeed, yeah. yes. And though Thaleus may have been wrong, like initially not everything's all water the and the lodestone yeah. doesn't actually it's have hilarious. a psyche. But he, he was right more than he was People wrong, at, at least functionally within where he was at. Right. Yes. In, in the universe for understanding yeah. the universe and like an example that was used in this episode the was, intentionality was right yeah yeah well yeah. we still function as if the earth is flat 
you know, you drive, you think, you know, okay, that is flat, but it's it's not. It's round. And we really don't... But it feels ha- flat to us. Yeah, we don't act well, like we're on a ball. And we can put it on a flat map yeah. and, you know, distort it a little bit to, you know, get around, you know, with certain things. But for the most part, for your everyday, it's flat. The ground is flat. Gravity goes down. Yes. Um, which will yes. lead us to... I can't read that, but in this episode, talking about... I forget whose insight it was, like, the idea that, you know, uh, things things that are like each other yes like to go towards each other you know there and that's you gravity yes you know, the pen is like yes the, the lodestone has psyche we're about to get to that yeah. so thales is the first natural philosopher we know of and since what remains okay so we got that mm-hmm. all is the moist dj summed that up really really well there um putting aside the littleness of the statements mm-hmm. we can remember that greece is surrounded by water water falls from the sky water is what people need to live water takes the shape of any container it's, it's false, but it's actually quite rational. That's a good insight. And so he's not doing mythology anymore. There's no divine agent involved. They're literally trying to do natural science, basically. Mm-hmm. So this is the natural philosophers versus the sophists. And so let's move on here. So the lodestone has psyche. The lodestone is a kind of natural magnet. Yeah. So it can move things move itself in other things. Psyche referred to anything that is a living or self-moving. The capacity to make things move. So So self-moving is a... I forgot to put that in there, but that's kind of important. Living things and magnets can make things move. What he's ultimately described as trying to get is the underlying force behind things. Yeah. That's that's good. What is the prime moving force? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Which is almost like asking what is God, but... Yes. So this is basically (laughs) the beginning of ontology. Yeah. That's what ontology means. Mm -hmm. That's uh, the study of being... And the structure of reality. Mm-hmm. Thales is, is introducing the ontological analysis that drives the scientific revolution. Yeah. This kind of analysis of the study of being and structure of reality is what drives the scientific revolution. Even scientists today are trying to get at the underlying forces and understand the depths of reality. So ontological depth perception is, is increasing, isn't it? And doing, uh, but do, it never seems to get to the end. And doing it in a way that's not. Um like how would you say it? theologistical uh like a theology which a theology is incorporating everything into an understanding well, of what is good of where you could see where that separation mm-hmm. could have come from in this time for greece it, their spirituality was still merged with their scientific mm-hmm. inquiry yeah. so but eventually these branches of interest that were yes. a part of a holistic ecology of learning practices did branch and this is probably the start of too, you know, like there there are no morals within everything is the moist, the lodestone has psyche, and uh, no, they're just trying to get at what is the fundamental yeah, nature of things, yeah, yeah so and physical and, reality, well, and they're trying to understand what what how is this thing made up? What are these constituent elements? That's where we get the idea of atoms. So this from, is pretty. This is Greece. so I would say this is beneficial to our growth of understanding as a species of the world but i can also see the seeds of this meaning crisis in this because yes once this type of thing goes especially once we get into the sophists Mm -hmm. it it really starts to become striking you're like okay this is what we've been doing to ourselves ever since remove the the moral component for what is good in the oh yeah these guys would get off on just being able to be so good at their rhetoric that they could argue any point for or against and still win over the crowd it didn't matter what was the truth yeah and that's quite dangerous but that's modern media nowadays isn't it modern media academia um, well let's say no that's not modern media that's legacy old school corporate mass media style the yellow journalist style the 
greed that took over a legitimate enterprise known as journalism, the fourth estate. Yeah, was, call it corporate. You know, there's it, it large cor- corporations opposed to private businesses. Mega media news yeah. channels and outlets, those guys. But also, you know, the the idea of, you know, you go to a certain school and you get some letters before or after or whatever your name mm-hmm. Suddenly, you're like in certain circumstances. Yes, trust them. If it's a doctor, trust them. But that's within a specific field. This weird thing that we got. Well, just because you went to school for something means suddenly you're smarter and more educated about everything now. And it's like, well, no, not really. You know, they've convinced you. Well, depending on what you're studying, depends on the person. Depends on the professors. It certainly depends on. The idea of how much ideology, yes. ideological possession that is, has infested. And you have to forgive me for being the, a little uh, pessimistic on that end when it comes to. No, I mean we 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 should be aware. We should be wary. Well, you can also see the roots of Sophism in in the idea of having a selective academy university that is prestigious because you have to kind of have knowledge secreted away because in like because if. You don't, and everybody has access to it. No, no longer is your institution as yeah. valuable as it was before. It's it's it, it, it's an old symptom of our tribe. I mean, we've been tribal beings for so long. It was an, the education educational facilities to, uh, built by mostly the Catholic Church, I think, that then inspired the modern college institutions, which are a great idea. Let's have a higher level education and spread it out and make it increasingly available. Now we've got community colleges and it it goes on and on and on. A lot of them are very elitist and we can certainly have, I would love to see us get back to the days of just going up on a hill where that old guy, you know, in your town is always going to be and all these other 20 philosophers talking around with him. I'm sitting on the steps at the university and, learning together i think that there's going to be a looser yet more comprehensive form of education coming that will allow us to test our metal on a lot of different subjects to see what really does interest us even if initially we think it wouldn't and then also really focus on the things that we do find greatly interest us and that we get so interested in they don't feel like work they're an interest and then that you know that what that person's mode of being can be that primary mode that they could hold in their community perhaps so there's certainly we got to get away from this factory industrial style education with the bells and the very strict amount of time that you got to be the the forced uh acquiescence arbitrary mindless acquiescence acquiescence because uh, the regurgitation just the forced memorization and then regurgitation of facts that disappear in two months and if you don't know the answer just remember always mark c yeah, things taught in an unenjoyable manner instead of teaching critical thinking. Yeah, well, not teaching kids how to think, just teaching them what to say. Yeah, I think on command basically. Yeah, yeah. So that training style well, needs to turn into actual education. We have a scaling issue, like as far as you know, if it's public schools, there's a yeah. lot of kids that have to go through the public schools, and it's really hard to have forty kids in a classroom and have an individualized education process for each one of those kids. So what I'm what I'm actually starting to see even locally is you have you know these micro school kind of things mm-hmm. that teach the young people and I'd like to see that let's see more of that yeah because like, people that want to homeschool their kids and then a lot of those people do go up go on and start micro schools in their communities and then the community starts to fund that thing then that can become a local community school again yeah. and we can have this 
everybody in the same room, basically, the young kids up to the yeah. older kids, so the older kids can help teach the younger kids well, and help free up the teacher you could to even, move around the classroom you as could she even needs do, to. And, you could even do this in the higher education level as well, dude, like, yeah. particularly in the it realm of all like... The way. It should be the higher education and public school. The whole thing should be united into one giant network. <clears throat> you're all going to the same places. And you can learn on whatever level you're at it on any subject. Well, so uh, the uh, eight-year-old genius can go into his high-level physics. Um, well, and I'm thinking of like, say, like on the community level, you know, you'd have places that you could, as a community, set aside where these are places to talk of ideas. So you'd learn, you know, like actual philosophy, not the oh yeah, did you read this person and this person and this person, and can you recite this? But no, like. What's going on with the day? What are we learning? What are we doing? It, you know, coffee, great? coffee houses used to kind of be like this. I'd love to see it, man. Um, I would love to see it. But, well, anyway, yeah, let's get let's get on though. Um, that would be beautiful to see. I think that we can achieve that. That's part of awakening from the meaning crisis, right there. It's going to be us changing within our own selves, growing with our families, reconnecting with our families and our communities. And starting to come back together to build the world that we want to see. And we create our own great reset. We choose which phase, what kind of existence we phase into now as a species. Because we certainly are on this cusp. We are going through a phase shift. So ancient Greece was a... Oh wait, I'm, I'm skipping. Socrates rejects the natural philosophers because they don't help him with his axial project. They give you truth without transformation. So this was, you were trying to get at this, it's like hard-boiled, materialistic, getting down to the nitty-gritty, trying to understand how things are actually made up. But there was no aspect of transcendence and self-realization, yeah, self-growth, and that's, transformation that's within, theology does. within this philosophy. And he's yeah. like, it needs to be a part yeah. of something broader. They don't give you truth. They give you truth without transformation. They don't indicate how you became wise or how you become wise or overcome self-deception or how to become a good person, which people say even today, like, mm -hmm. you know, be a good person. Yeah. Try and be a good yeah. person. Truth without relevance. What is the, what is the compelling reason to be good? Yeah. If there is no transcendent value. Well, that if if there was no transcendent value, then you get the well. What can I do? Do whatever you want, and well, you could we're just see, do whatever we're you seeing, want. We're seeing this now. If there's no um. <laughs> repercussions, if there's no nothing like love, that is truly the fundamental nature of reality, well, or anything and, of that like. And, and it at does, least that that feels this a conception of God that and it strikes. Yeah, the and it doesn't have to be something big or grand. It just has to be bigger than man you know mankind human sure um whereas like say like the gods previously a higher ideal for us to the like previously the gods were depicted as the characteristics that make up the man right. your libido your rage your love your prosperity the land on which you live on and how prosperous that is mm -hmm. whereas this axial shift socrates axial shift is it's this standard is not the components that make up the man, but the man looking up to something much greater and, and aspiring to ascend. Yes. And then how turning the to gods ascend. into the ultimate hero yeah. archetypes. 
And where is that how in the philosophy ah. to transcend to these higher ideas? Standing under understanding. <laughs> so truly. And you, how do you get that without wonder? Mm. You got to wonder widely and deeply enough to think as broadly as possible. Because we do need some compelling moral reason. Yeah. And there does seem to be this thing called love and this miraculous existence that we happen to exist in as well. And this capacity, these higher level capacities for humans to tune into that Socrates found himself capable of. That he was trying to share, got himself killed for it. But that's a a common theme. What did he say? Shut him up. When was that? Bill Hicks? Bill Hicks, man. Uh. Yeah... He was one of the one of the best. They give you truth without transformation. They don't indicate how to become wise or overcome self-deception. Mm-hmm. So ancient Greece was a direct democracy, which means your capacity to argue and persuade was a route to power. A new psychotechnology is created, rhetoric, the art of using language to change people's minds. The sophists, this is already becoming familiar. We're starting to feel mm-hmm. like think politicians and media personalities the sophists pick up on the fact that when we are communicating we pick up on what is salient or seemingly relevant not necessarily what is true a modern example of where rhetoric is apparent is advertising which leads us to an important concept to get into technically and not just to be vulgar but here's the term bullshit we were bringing up earlier harry frankfurt's classic essay on bullshit gets into this and makes the distinction between Someone who's a bullshit artist and someone who's a liar. A liar depends on your commitment to the truth. But bullshit makes you disinterested with whether or not what is being said is true. Yeah, and so how how are ways that we can increase saliency in things? Well, you can make it brighter, bolder, higher contrast, um, hit people in the feels, you know, like the sad music. You know, and the puppies with the eyes open, you know, uh, what's her name singing in the background. Um, you can you can challenge somebody's ego and pride. You can, you know, oh, you don't you know, you don't want to miss out on this or else your neighbors are going to be a lot, you know, you know, yeah. like the old commercials where it show the neighbor washing their car. Yeah, and, it can be. And used then, to, well, you got to get one, too. Or, yeah. you know, yeah, it can be used to dishonestly manipulate the heck out of us. So the sophists were only concerned with teaching the skills regardless of morality. Yeah. And so there's this problem on both sides for Socrates. A liar depends on your commitment to the truth, but bullshit makes you disinterested more than not what what is being said is true. When someone is bullshitting you, they are trying to get you to not care how true the claim is, but to capture you with how catchy it is and how much it grabs your attention, how attractive it is. I'm loving it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's crazy how it overrides the mind even though you know it's bullshit it's like it's still cause to you that's because they've uh well we use food science to load their foods you know in the case of i'm loving it with the perfect amount of sodiums and sugars to get all kinds of chemical dances to happen in your brain that make you addicted to it and love the taste and feel really good and you eat it till after yeah indeed yeah yeah well yeah Yeah. every now and again though that first bite is like wow this is amazing and then you get halfway through and you're like oh my god yeah they're just trying to 
mimic the taste of of something freshly butchered or freshly cut and chopped and sautéed, you know. And so when it comes to lying, all those good endorphins you get when you're getting high amounts of nutrients. It's hard to find sugar and salt in our environment, so we got very big spikes for interest in those chemicals, and we get huge responses when we find them to give us the urge to go long enough to find them again. And so that is massively used by industry today to manipulate the heck out of us. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> so good. when the sophist lies, you can see it like, you know, well, politicians are a really good example, and, you know, it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. It, everybody knows that the p- politicians, if they've got good salience people, PR people, they can say whatever, and they'll lie to you straight up. Oh, we'll do this for you. Well, I'm working mm-hmm. for you. And I'm like, well, your bank account begs to differ, buddy. Yeah, um, this is cool right here. So, so there's two sides to attention, and they can be caught by what you find as salient. You can know them by that. So when you pay attention to something, it becomes more salient. And you can direct attention to something to make it more salient. And it spins on itself until the the attention is attached. And we lose capacity to know other things. So when something like, I'm loving it, grabs your attention, you're not thinking about other things when you hear that. It's very catchy. It just grabs your attention. The yellow lighting and the red makes you feel hungry. And it's just super salient. So it bypasses all of your other conscious activity you're just like this is what i'm most attending to right now with my perception and that's how they can sell you on so remember the episode the simpsons episode where you know bart was recruited into a boy band that was really just getting people to join the navy and so he's talking to lisa and he's like yeah you got uh, subliminal liminal and super liminal and the subliminal would be like the stuff in the music. The the lim the liminal would be like you know your posters join the navy. And then she's like, well, it's super liminal. And he just yells out, opens the window and yells at some guy, hey you, join the navy. <laughs> but the point on that though is that's where the bright flashy colors or the flowery rhetoric that tricks your brain into thinking something's going on that's not going on. Mm-hmm. And there's something called double speak where you can you know people yep. can learn how to do this where you can say absolutely nothing but use a whole bunch of words that keep triggering the person's brain mm-hmm. but they don't realize they're they're not actually forming any actual relation w- to one another. Yeah. 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 The landscape just keeps Kamala mushing Harris around. Harris is a master of this. Politicians in general. Yeah, well they t- they the, they teach politicians this. Always the White House press person Oh, she's they're always uh, Queen Jean Pierre is, is uh, not 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 good at double speak. We'll just put it that way. Too many ums and ahs. But that's, oh, that's no. another. Oh yeah, Uh-oh. yeah. Jen Psaki was much better at the double speak, and she still had problems. Wow. It's it's hard to be it's hard to be really Masterful good at double sophist. speak. Yeah, well, the sophists are intellectual double speak. Socrates was antagonistic to the sophists. Of course, as he should have been. Those people stuck, and they need to be challenged. Well, relevance without truth. The power to transform, but there was no actual good transformation happening. Yeah. Socrates wanted both. He wanted individuals who knew how to pay attention to truth and relevance. So we can let what's relevant be, become more apparent mm-hmm. to our environment of what we're attending to. And then we can define what is true more accurately from that. And he was almost like, you know, you stealing not usurping but stealing power from the sophists and they can't have that because you'd go out and talk which is normal people you can't have that you can't have normal people learning how to use rhetoric to change each other's minds and no you can't you can't have that because then you can't 
fool them. You can't well, the bullshit Roman them. Congress became increasingly greedy and owned by the financial interests within the city that were greedy individuals amongst themselves that weren't willing to play fair or honorably. And so the yeah, that they became increasingly corrupt. The people of Rome became increasingly corrupt. We're talking about Greece, but this is following oh. Greece. This oh, is how well. the, the things broke down. I yeah, think sorry, Greece, Greece, Greece had its uh, had its corruption as well. You know, their their representative democracy was not like an everybody. It was landowning men. Right. I was um, thinking about that quote when the Roman uh, patriarch and the Roman people. I can't remember exactly how the quote goes, but it's talking about how Rome fell. This is exactly certainly what happened in Greece as well. Um, but it was the beginning of democracy. Sure. Well, I, at it's this a, point in the story, it's where a we're good at idea now. to get people together and discuss ideas. Um, yes. But, you know, if it's filled with people who are experts at bullshit, then mm -hmm. nothing gets done. Yeah, so they're using language to change people's minds, but they're not necessarily doing so as wisely as they could be. And Socrates recognizes this. The sophists pick up on the fact that when we are communicating, we pick up on what's salient and irrelevant, not what is necessarily true. Mm -hmm. Modern example of when rhetoric is apparent is advertising, which leads us to an important concept, so we got that. A liar depends on your commitment to the truth. We got that. There's one last sentence. When someone is bullshitting you, they're trying to get you not to care how the truth, how true the claim is, but to capture you on how catchy. So you can't lie to yourself, but this doesn't mean self-deception is impossible because you can bullshit yourself. This is something Verveke argues. This is because lying has to do with believing, which isn't something you directly do. You can hope that everyone loves you or wish it, but you can't voluntarily believe it. But you can direct your attention, which makes it more salient to you. Your attention can also be captured by what is more salient. This creates a positive feedback loop. Until your attention is attached to something and you lose the capacity to notice other things, that's how you bullshit or deceive yourself. So I think we covered that pretty well. It's the opposite of rational self-knowledge. Socrates saw this as the opposite of the axial revolution. Mm -hmm. What we need right now is another axial revolution for our time. Sophists represent relevance without truth. Socrates wanted both. He wanted those who found salient what they knew to be true and for the truth that they found to help train their attempts to find salience. So this is aporia, uh, the term aporia now that the state people would fall into after Socrates questioned them to the point of not even knowing what is going on. This is the point that Socrates was trying to help people drive into and go through. Um, he was trying to get people to realize how much each one of us is bullshitting ourselves all the time. This provokes a reaction in people, either anger or insight. The insight being, I need to transform myself to keep relevance and truth tracking each other and enabling each other. He got his answer to why he was the wisest of all humans. He knew what he did not know. And that's infinite, you know. And the unexamined life, he said, is not worth living. When they tried to force Socrates on the stand, when he had a chance to live, um, they said, just give up your teaching of wisdom to everybody and we'll let you live, okay? And he said, no, the unexamined life is not worth living. I won't stop doing this. And... And he even challenged them further, and he was like, "You guys should actually pay me and feed me yeah. to do this." That'd that be would the be worst the punishment. That would be the yeah. worst punishment to me because then I'd be stuck having to do this with you guys for the rest of my life. 
<laughs> this is great, man. So Socrates was trying to get people to realize how much each one of us is bullshitting ourselves all the time. I've seen people argue that this was like a little bit egotistical of Socrates. He didn't need to go out like that. But that's another conversation. I mean, it nailed the point home. It made the point. He self-sacrificed for this point. I think that's why we remember it so well. Oh, so and they would he was working on a high level of wisdom. There, they would have killed him one way or another. Yeah. This way, at least they can do it through trial. He, yeah, instead this of him was going to be maximum poisoned. effect for him, I think. And he, he realized that yeah. this would re- this would re- reverberate because he had friends that were well along their way as well, yeah. like his student Plato, which certainly did yep. grow into his own. So this reaction provoked a reaction, anger or insight. He got the anger and said, unexamined life is not worth living. Wisdom is keeping your truth machinery and your relevance machinery tightly coupled together so you don't bullshit yourself. Hmm. This is the practice of wisdom. This is why wisdom is so essential to us as human beings, not just sheer intellectual capacity or physical prowess and capacity, but our wisdom. How do we wield our powers? Well, even, you know, the for best effect for ourselves and everyone around us and, and the weakest among us, like, say, physically can still become very strong in their wisdom. The not so smart among us can still become very wise. Mm-hmm. Wisdom isn't necessarily it. a function of intelligence. Intelligence, it takes high level intelligence, like people like Verveke, to look at these things, break yeah. them down, form them together. Sure. This uh, wonderful man who wrote these notes, like you do have to have intelligence for certain things, but, you know, like. I don't know how to describe this without offending somebody, but it's, they're so it's, interlinked. Though, but the actually. wisdom of the idiot, that person who the simpleton, it, it, like I, you know, I was in classes with the slow kids and the weird kids, and actually some of the insights that they have that are just very simple and just how they look at it, pretty freaking wise. Deep consideration, you know, yeah. like they know where they're at. Yeah. Deep consideration, yeah. a high so you amount don't need of to care be, about something. Yeah. In fact, loving something can help you deeply consider it and that can help guide and, and it, develop that capacity for and it wisdom. doesn't always come from you know vaulted high places mm-hmm. no but yet right you know? right here i love that how this is described wisdom is keeping your truth your capacity for comprehending truth your truth machinery and your relevance machinery your capacity for realizing what is relevant in your environment tightly coupled so that you're not bullshitting yourself you can see around every single one of those ads and those political pitches and in fact, maybe you're even willing to do further research, challenge your own conceptions and try and find the closest truth, sense of truth that you can get. And rather than favoring any one side, just be interested in what is true, and what is going to be helpful and good for one and all. How can we grow together? What are methods and ways of conciliation when we find ourselves in particularly harsh disagreements that we can utilize? So, ta erotica, how to love well. This is how we can develop our wisdom. Not romantic love, but to know what to care about. To know what to care about. And to keep what one cares about directed at what is real. Uh, Socrates would do things like walk into marketplaces and say, look at all the things I don't need. Or say, how much time did you spend on fixing your hair this morning? Oh, about 20 minutes. How much on fixing yourself? That's pretty offensive. <laughs> it could be offensive or it could be insightful. That's what I he try might to just do have a glint clock. in his eye as he says this too. He might just have a smile. I spend more time on trying to fix myself than my hair, yeah. obviously. Yeah, no, That's he might just have some kind of Robin Williams charm as he's speaking to you. And this is why well, he's so powerful a figure. Sometimes like the statement like, look at all these things I don't need is quite absurd. 
but it's funny. we it's enjoy the absurd. It's joyful, and it's also <laughs> very clever and, and insightful because he just felt so good to be alive. It would be like, you know, like somebody who can't smell going up and going and going up and smelling a flower. Mm-hmm. He's, like, just very, he's a very present human being, and yeah. I think he was very deeply immersed in that joy of being. And, and he also had a, a large amount of uh, DGAF going on. You know, he probably also, well, uh, you know, I, I, I would, I would, I would suspect that he learned just as much, if not more, from working with people, going out into the market, doing these things. You know, that's mm-hmm. it's almost like he's experimenting with the people and testing yeah, his ideas and his theories to form sure. or his hypotheses right. to All form the a better theory. Yeah. This was his and bringing then, other people yeah. with him and, and you know, doing yep. it, too. Because the people who didn't get offended were the people like, hey, see, uh, see you tomorrow, man. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, he was Cheers. definitely, he was bringing in a lot of followers and cadres and, yeah. and people that undertook this philosophical method with him. Well, and that's why the sophists got after him, because yes. everyone, who, it's, well, I won't say everybody, but there was a significant he amount of people that were waking up to the bullshit. Yeah. And waking up to the, not just the bullshit from the sophists, but the bullshit they tell themselves that make them prone to the bullshit of the sophists. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Or those aspiring to be sophists, too. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people that weren't in the club that wanted to be in the club. Yeah. That people were that just, were just going after power yeah. without any moral ideals behind them are very dangerous to society. And so Socrates is like, guys, this is not civilization right. long term. This is not how yeah, right. we're going to do it. This ain't going to work. So he infused his wisdom into Greece, which helped keep Greece sane for a, for a while and as sane as it could be for a bunch of crazy human beings but you know here we are still somehow chugging along so he also compared Socrates compared himself to a midwife he knew how to help people give birth to a better self to be reborn uh, to draw it out he knew how to draw it out so he compared himself to midwife that's that's interesting he also knew how reason and love go together Frankfurt, author of On Bullshit, also wrote a book called Reasons for Love. Reasons for Love. Two things we have been taught are anti- two things that we've been taught are antithetical. This separation is one of our greatest follies. We should rationally know what we most care about and what to most care about. That's on point. I agree. Yeah. Uh, Reasons for love. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, I like to use that long-term survival. The long-term comfort and happiness and increased peace and less stress for your family, your community, and your children and their children after and the broader world for generations to come, that's an ultimately awesome ideal for human being, for all of human beings to be able to be guided by. And then we need some kind of transcendent greater ideal than ourselves, but something that compels us. We got to understand there's not just – because survival, man, when it gets hard – we need reasons not to start eating one another. Yeah. Basically, like we need very, very compelling reasons. We also need we also need reasons to not let life get so easy and comfortable that we forget what it is to be hard as well. Yeah. It's the balance between, you know, having a good, fulfilled life, but not so fulfilled that ne- the next generations don't know why it is good to be fulfilled and yeah. like live the simple life or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, so I have- we do need to get back to what's simple, and we can keep all of our gadgets along the way, um, but we certainly need to learn to be more symbiotic with one another and our environment, not even to go like all climate change here or anything, just like 
we're killing all the soil. We are killing all the natural water ways that we have access to. We're killing the ocean. Like we're just there's a lot of greed run amok going on, and everyone can I think generally agree on that. That sucks, but, but yeah, this transcendent ideal that compels I, yeah, us so much. What, what? What? How do we get it without some conception of something like God, something, something that is transcendent, even if it is not personified? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily this entirely ideal of the absolute blame the greed component for all that. I, I, I don't, I, I'm not blaming it for I, well, anything. This is just hold, what humans went hold through. On. Yeah, go but ahead. It's, You're good. It's the apathy of the individual participating in it, and that's where we need to. Sure work best or work with most is the you know the yeah, individual man. the normal people yeah, for sure because you know you can be as greedy as you want but if nobody wants your product then right right yeah know. true well we gotta infuse love back into this world we have to and i think that if we can see that i love bringing up this martin luther king quote on almost every one of my episodes but martin luther king said it so well god is love when he quoted the first epistle of john and he went on to describe how this is seen by all the great world religions, all the great mystery tr- traditions of our past. Ultimately, the supreme highest ideal is love in all of these sc- ancient scriptures across the world. And that insight that the transcendent is somehow composed entirely of what we use this word love for seems to be true to all human cultures and to our actual human experience. And not to try and argue for exactly what is because God knows it's infinite and it's beyond our comprehension. This existence is absolutely ineffable. I don't know how to explain it. None of us can. The greatest scientist, the greatest religious mind, what have you, they're still arguing to this day over it. But we have to come to some sort of consensus together on what's going to guide us. So I'm, I'm thinking of love as this transcendent ideal. We use that in, in place of the word or not maybe in place of the word God, but interchangeably with that kind of term. With those kinds of terms that are out there that we already have for the divine or the supreme or the one or whatever. So replace. And then we just start to get to know each other's different religious and spiritual so re- conceptions. Re- replace power with love, and instead of. So it would be with Hendrix, with, that with great quote that's always attributed to to Hendrix. You see that? No, I'm I'm uh, so in instead of, of saying. Power, no. Uh, so uh, instead of the saying, with great power comes great responsibility, replace power with love. With great love comes great uh, responsibility. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, we need responsibility. I, I think if you have capacity, if you have the ability, you should be responsive with it. And if we have the response, if we have the ability to make the world a little bit better, then we have the response. Well, I think every single so. human yeah. being, if you have any iota of consciousness, has something has the ability to have re- to be responsible, you have to have response. You have to yes. be able to respond to, you know. We can all be more loving. Well, and, and when you love, there is a nature of responsibility to it. Like, you know, the binding of love within a family. Yeah. They're responsible yeah, to yeah, each yeah. other. They have yeah. responses with each other, but they're also responsible for, say, the well-being of the yes. family. Or And, well, when you don't have responsibilities, you don't live a good, healthy life. You don't grow. You don't adapt. You know, you don't. Right. <clears throat> You know, responsibility has a negative um, view. It does have a negative connotation to us, but yeah, not responsibility as in you have to do do your chores and stuff. But we do got to do our chores. But but it's something you feel compelled to do as well. Um, Like I, I feel responsible for this person because I, I I left water out on the ground and didn't put the sign up, so I feel Mm -hmm. responsible for that. You know, like we put it on ourselves. Yeah, if you're Um, able to respond in that moment, so some kid 
that you're walking down the street and some kid on a bike gets like clipped by a car and you know you're able to respond and help the kid get home safe or whatever then you do that thing that's just being responsible it's the same thing with how we may attend together because we're really good when we actually organize and work together we agree on the project at innovating new ways of interrelating and being in our societies that are going to be able to function over the long term that are going to help us through these uncertain times we have to stabilize ourselves as a species as civilizations and a lot of civilizations maybe to morph into 2.0 versions of themselves well we have the utilizing what's tried and true that we found so far and where 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 do we need certain upgrades or fixes to counteract the greedy uh power hungry sides Uh, we don't need to counteract it we need to incentivize it greed uh so yet again buy their products force them to change their mode if they want to survive that's that's a you know because the one thing too is like one step along the way but there's there's ways to motivate humans well, beyond just their self-interest. There's but we, when you're dealing with people who are just sucking for power and vacuuming up the whole world and doing that stuff. How do you stuff, feel to sociopaths? Sure. Yeah. So like you know like the how do you like well okay if you want to make if you want to make whatever amount of money and be the guy everybody loves and adores well you can't keep you know starving people or you know making crap products that are killing people or. You know, um, there are ways we can. We got to depopularize these those kinds of and also how do we how do we incentivize people to start having these conversations? That's on the on the small end, you know, for people to take responsibility to that have the ability to respond. You know, to give people the ability to respond and doing it, I think, and more and more and more, we get to start talking about responsibility. Those of us that are adults now for this world and the next generations to come, it's the name of the fucking game. And, and we don't, don't need to be slacking in these times because we're we're here on the precipice, man. It's exciting, and it's terrifying at once. Don't feel, but, feel know, afraid to go deep. In. Like, we know. have the capacity to actually flow in times of crisis. We are able to skirt yeah. the precipice and do so with a with elegance and virtuosity and insane levels of of capacity. You know, it's, we we've seen it over and over again in so many artists and athletes demonstrations to us of what can be achieved so yeah we're able to dance gracefully through incredibly difficult situations and that i think is what we're going to be priming ourselves to do now as a species if we're going to make it through this phase and earn our friggin' butterfly wings make it out of this cocoon this phase shift alive mm-hmm. all right let's go How reason and love go together. We should rationally know what we most care about. The shamanic is still in Socrates. He could spend up to 48 hours meditating on his own thoughts. He could drink a lot without getting drunk. He could go into battle in winter without any shoes on his feet. These were all the stories that we hear about Socrates. And he had this divine voice that would speak to him when he was about to do something wrong. Yeah, he developed can, a conscience. Yeah, you and the shamanic the... has become part of the, the Socratic Interesting. One of his followers, Plato, takes Pythagoras and Socrates to advance even more significantly the axial revolution in ancient Greece. And that's the end of episode four. Yep. Uh, We should take a quick break.
to the break, all that. It's nine o'clock. Um, yeah, that was that was a really good episode. That's when it felt like it was really starting to pick up for me, because like you know these myths and these thinkers are somewhat familiar. First three episodes just, very much. Just, yeah. First is an intro. The second is yeah. following up on that intro, and then he starts painting the picture, and then we start kind of diving in. Yeah. And I love these dives where you get to get very specific on the individuals and their time, because that's so telling. And one interesting note, like so, from a great scholar of of uh, Platonism and all of that, that Vervagius. Yeah. So Plato combined Socrates and. Um, had his little triangular theorem. Uh, sorry, the name's... Um, Pythagoras. Pythagoras. And you can kind of see his, um, his lineage, if you will. There's something called a platonic solid, which is basically, if you'd say, take like the, the shape of a triangle, the smallest shape that you can make with just triangles. We call that the, what, the tetrahedron. And then there's the cube, which is with squares. And then the last platonic solid is the um, pentagon. Um, so he was somebody who's combining like the theories of math and shape, and that's applied to the world as it is. But then also the idea of you know man's relationship with its own ascension and growing. Um, so you know, like he was a scientist as well as a theologian, if you will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Both at the same time and using them to inform each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that you know, you got a that agent arena relationship with the going back and forth. But now, as like that like, deep sense of wonder of what is this transcendence that creates this reality. So as they're breaking apart and trying to understand how reality might fit together, there's in, remaining in this sense of wonder and awe for it. And yeah, Socrates was wrestling with how some of his fellows like the natural philosophers were breaking into were, were in that process of breaking things down but they were losing that transcendent ideal that sense of of what how is all of this possible and how can this guide us to find out more of what is true and good and same thing with the sophists they are very skilled at the art of utilizing rhetoric to reach to reach people if used for good, but also to bullshit people if used with dishonorable intent. Oh, well, and sometimes you can bullshit people to do good things, too. Sure. Uh, well, good intent I, versus evil intent, right? Yeah. And But, you know, when having to tell lies, um, that's like, you know, like... Cause there's bu- white lies, bu- sure. Bullshit can, yeah. be, bullshit can be fun. You go you go to the bar, you bullshit with your buddies, you know, that's... that's yeah. you, you, you're a fireman in a building yeah. that you're trying to save... Um, the woman doesn't want to leave. She's scrambling because she can't find her cat. She no. can't find her cat. No, and we'll, we'll get like, your well, cat. Don't worry about your cat. cat. Yeah. Or, you know, and maybe someone is trying to get the cat, but it might not be gotten. Yeah, well, that you, you got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I got to get you out of here. So come yeah. on, let's go. Yeah, guys. So we're gonna take a quick break here. Go ahead and grab yourself some popcorn, have a drink, get yourself a smoke, do the things you got to do. We're gonna be right back. Yo, we're back. What's up, everybody? Hey, 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 hey. Welcome back to the stream. Before I forget, uh, DJ and I, we play in a band, American Dharma, some of you may know. And we have a show coming up in Winchester, Virginia, this Saturday. That's December 3rd. This Saturday, we're going to be rocking with the great Cannon Hill and the mighty Demise. And that's going to be happening at Granny's in Winchester, so check it out. Uh, Music starts at 8, I believe. And yeah, we're going to be up there. 
So you guys should come on out if you can. And then December 16th, this is going to be a Friday. It's going to be at Zen West in Baltimore, Maryland. We're going to be playing with Benny O.K. And they're awesome. And uh, that's going to be a great time. Really, really cool venue. Both places are super chill. And you guys should come out. Come have fun. We're going to make music. You can dance. I'm you can drink. Hit things with sticks and people will enjoy it. Yes. It's the time of the year to be merry. And yeah, watch out for the sticks. Don't worry, I haven't dropped my sticks. Well, I dropped them at last band practice, but we won't talk about that. Oh, okay, that's where you're going with it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm a drummer. About? It's the best job ever. You can just beat on things. You didn't hit anybody, sticks. though. No, no. no. It just One of them went flying. That happens. It happens. It's practice. Poor technique. Ugh. Yeah. No, you realized what you were doing, I guess, at that moment. and uh, Yeah. It's what it is, uh, man. Yeah, you know. These things happen. Sometimes you forget to do the pinch, and you just rap, and then it just gets all floppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, fam, let's jump back in here. So, Episode 5. Now we're getting to... This is a really good episode. Uh, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis by John Verveke, Episode 5, Plato in the Cave. So, for those of you just tuning in, we reviewed the first 10 episodes of John Verveke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lecture series. It's incredible. You all should check it out. It's, uh, it's relevant to all of us alive today. It helps us understand why is all this social discord happening, why are the civilizational breakdowns uh, looming, and what can we do about it? How may we awaken from this crisis? Not just to be woke, but to continually be awakening. How we, may we develop wisdom so that we can find out what is most necessary, true, and relevant to put our attention to? All of that. So here's a quote from the episode. Notice that reason and spirituality are not opposed to each other, but are inseparably bound together. Inseparably. That's a tricky word. Yeah. Reason and spirituality are not opposed to each other here in this story, but are inseparably bound. This is the story of the cave that Plato gives us. Where's my mouse at? Here we are. What makes something sacred is that it's inexhaustible. Okay, this is a quote from Verveke. I'll start over. What makes something sacred is that it's an inexhaustible fount of insight and intelligibility that is transformative of us. Verveke, speaking of Plato's writings, suggesting that we as a society reevaluate what is truly meant by the word sacred. He argues Platonism is the bedrock of Western spirituality. It's how we've come to conceptualize Christian, Judaic, and so on frameworks of understanding reality and interacting with what gives us our values and orientations to life. Plato wondered how people could be so foolish as to kill Socrates, as Athens did. The city that he loved had killed his most beloved teacher. Yeah, and that's a that's a this immense human being. It's a powerful conundrum. So, mm. like, uh, so Socrates's conundrum is, you know, how can I how how can the gods say I'm the wisest one, but I I know I'm not wise. This conundrum mm. now is how can something I love so much kill another thing that I love so much? Why why are we like that? Why do we do this? You know why why are we you know so captivated by the shadows on the walls? Why are we so angry? Uh, I don't know. It's 
I guess the, the, the deep pl- questions. Yeah, I guess Plato's cave. I think I said this uh, on one of the episodes was the how can we become like a, so a, lost? a brotherly love story mm-hmm. dedicated to his teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, like you yes, know. yeah. You can tell that Socrates was definitely in mind, and I think you know. Socrates was the man walking out of the cave in this story, mm-hmm. you know, like, and then coming back and with this new vision and trying to share it to people. And what did they do? They killed him for it. <laughs> you know? That they did. Uh, How could they kill Socrates? So Plato creates the first psychological theory in history. His psychology is still currently relevant to us as humans in important ways he comes up with a theory about why human beings do foolish things people are clearly beset by inner conflict Verveke uses examples like dieting or procrastination we know what the right thing to do is but still struggle to do it and often don't Plato has an insight and posits the idea that we now find obvious we have different centers of the psyche man and monster Man is the seat of head, of the head, of, uh, of reason. It's the seat of truth, falsity, long-term goals, abstract thoughts, and monster is the seat of appetite. It works in terms of pleasure, pain, immediate goals, like food, sustenance, survival, and superficial information. Yeah, and you could think of that as like the animalistic side the of animalistic your bio- side of us, or biological. the bi- biological side of us, opposed Drives, to the yes. yeah, opposed to the reasoning mind. Yes, yeah. note that not monster isn't necessarily bad. Yeah, and Plato didn't think so either. Immediately, or immediate superficial information is crucial in life or death situations. So, of course, yeah, the monster isn't necessarily bad, but the monster. So the monster makes things salient to you, urgent and catchy to your attention. Man, the head, the reasoning capacity, is what you use to understand. So this is how Plato conceptualizes it. Thank you again to Mark Mulvey for these notes. The monster is constantly racing ahead of what we understand. We're perpetually vulnerable. What improves people's chances of losing weight? They join a group. Why? Because you're not just a biological creature, you're also a cultural one. Plato compared this to a lion. Since this whole inner conflict we're going through is one between honor and shame. Honor is what you feel you've respected. Is what you feel when... Okay, honor is when you feel you've been respected by those you consider your peers. Shame is when you feel you've failed to gain respect. Guilt is different. Guilt is when you feel you have failed to reach your ideal of what you should be. The lion is where Plato talks about the intermediate, socially agreed-upon shared goals between man and monster. The medium-term social goals, not abstract or superficial. And then Plato also represents this lion area as being within the chest, as he did the man in the head. Perhaps because notions of pride and honor seem to have a cultural associations with the chest, with heart, having heart, having courage, pushing your chest out. This is your thymus, the part of you that is motivated socially. When people are under threats, including inter, or, yeah, inner conflict, anxiety, they tend to be more self-centered and selfish, or more self-interested, more self-focused, survival-oriented. When people are under threat, they tend to become more egocentric, which is adaptive. It does aid survival. 
I don't have great claws. I don't have great teeth. What a silly structure. I'm teetering around on two feet. This is quoting Verveke. Almost losing my balance. I can't run quickly, so describing the human body. Every, everyone can see me from a long distance because I'm towering above the grass. My throat and vital organs are nicely exposed for any predator. This is a bad makeup. But you know what I can do? I can get together with a bunch of other human beings and we can get some pointy sticks and some dogs and we can kill everything on the planet. It's because we got this forebrain. Whew. Yeah, did we get powerful because of that cultural capacity that we have. Our ability to work together has always been adaptive. Hyperbolic discounting, temporal discounting. The more you're discounting, the less salient something is, the less it stands out for you. Hyperbolic. The less it grabs your attention. This is why the monster immediately... The monster immediate superficial things grab our attention more and distract us so much and can override the man. Why do we have this? Because technically, the less probable an event is, the less attention you should give it. This makes logical sense and is adaptive. Otherwise, you'd be overwhelmed by all the possibilities. Yeah, there's there's infinitely too many things that could possibly go on or are... In our field of awareness at any time. Yeah, yeah. and we have to do Too something about it or else yeah. we'd freeze up and not be able to do anything. Mm-hmm. So we have to get, get good at finding out what is relevant mm-hmm. out of all of this information very quickly. Well, using maybe your monster as a beast yeah. of burden opposed to something that's going to consume you. Mm. You know, you can you can use, you know, the, the ox monster to plow f- fields and propagate vegetation, if you, you know, for metaphor or... Yeah. Yeah, because here we learn about the, the monster idea of you got to tame the monster, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and well, the, if the monster is what makes things salient, then the you know, like say, like a hunting do- hunting dog, a dog can point and then al- and then make you aware to there's a duck or is the ally or with the monster to tame yeah. the the lion. Yeah, and the tamed lion is the uh, the the what would you call it the exam or. The, the metaphor for mm. a you know the 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 man and the monster in balance with each other mm-hmm. so the domesticated monster if you will right um and you know they're noble creatures and all that stuff i don't think it's a coincidence that even in places that didn't have freaking lions still had you know lions as being you know some royal thing or yeah, like yeah, you see it on coats of arms and theme. stuff like that. I don't even know where my part five notes are. I never caught up on that. No, no. Well, guide us here, Mark. But this I, is helpful, though. We're going to get into that. Um, they play tonic division here. I can see it coming up. So highly anxious people find things salient that they shouldn't. They find low yes. probability things too salient. Yes. That's the monster getting one over on you. Right. And yeah. Yeah, you're really good at... These people can find useful places in society. You're really good at looking at a whole range of possibilities of what could happen Mm -hmm. and trying to analyze all these different potential outcomes. But you can get lost in that place. Well, that's why you need your... And then you become uh, excessively wound up. Yeah, it's just anxious. That's where you have a distributed cognitive network. You know, you have some people that are the... all, All the possibilities people, and then you got the people who... 
whatever, crunch down the numbers into more usable information that other people can take that and then figure out what's more. Have a good instinct for what, where the quick decisions need to be made. And and not to use the homuncular fallacy, but I think, you know, you can see your brain doing that to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. You know, your eye sees infinite, like a ridiculous amount more information than your brain allows you to comprehend and your brain takes in more information than it allows you to comprehend. Right. Um, The monster. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So the very machinery that makes you adaptive is also the machinery that makes you prey to self-deception, self-destructive behavior. You can't throw this adaptive machinery away or you'll be riddled with anxiety. But if you keep it, you'll smoke the cigarette, you'll eat the cake, and do all the things that appear to have low immediate-term consequences. So this platonic division is echoed later by Freud in his three layers of human psyche, superego, ego, and id, and later still with scientific descriptions of reptilian brain, mammal brain, neocortex. We keep rediscovering these platonic divisions. Man can learn, and the lion can be trained. That's it, the lion can be trained. Using the Socratic method, i.e. dialogue, man can train the lion, that lion-hearted side. Together they can contain the monster and reduce as much as possible the inner conflict, which in turn makes you, one, less egocentric, and two, puts you more in touch with reality. Wow, that's crazy that basically the idea is man is making an alliance with the lion, this metaphor for the most powerful predator in the entire animal kingdom, and is using that alliance with this trained lion. It's actually overcame and trained the lion. With this level of human capacity, now it sets its attention upon its own self, its own inner conflicts, the monster within. That's awesome. That's a really cool, I like the story. And the monster monster serves a purpose as well. It's not just this arbitrary thing that's, you know, under the bridge that just eats children for no reason. It's... Or Billy Goats and the Billy Goats grunt, but it's, it's it serves a function. It's, the monster does serve a function, and it and like well, its function, like you said, is to show you what is immediately salient, and it's yes. it's a pure survival thing, you know instinct. It mm-hmm. is one of our baser instinct, our beast instinct, our yes. you know our animalistic instinct. It's the thing that keeps you alive, and the rational. The rational man, if you will, has to reason with this monster and make reason of mm-hmm. what this monster is providing to be salient. Is it actually salient or is it not? So, you know, you don't want to always pay attention to the barking dog, but when your dark dog barks in the middle of the night, you're like, oh, somebody's here. You know, pay attention. But you don't want your dog to be an overly barky dog because then you don't know the, the, the actual dangers that are coming your way. You've convinced yourself of something else. You're like, oh, he's always barking at something, but you've got somebody breaking into your garage or something, you know? Yeah. So train that monster to only bark when it's a problem, which means you have to teach it what the problems, what are these problems that you find, that the rational mind finds to be... Strong-hearted side of yourself can train this guy. Can yeah. train this dog yeah. wisely, though. Yeah. Has the capacity well, to do Well, it's interesting so. that we've formed the relationship with dogs that we have. Dude, it's so cool. You know, it's like... Yeah, they're, they're, we've been around each other for so long. They've been around us. They were the, the wolves that were maybe the least aggressive of the pack. That would be 
willing to get closest enough to us to try and feed off of our stuff and not mind us as long as we weren't like jerking and doing anything to them or moving around any sudden movements mm-hmm. they re- we learned to how to be when they came around because we realized they were picking off the rats and other things that were getting in the way sometimes or whatever it was that that you know the smoke of the meat you know the smell of the meat traveling was bringing them close so they were probably interacting on some level eating rats and getting close to the camps and getting into their food and gradually we took the initiative to try and train some of them and we started to train them they became like us like dogs don't need to look at each other's eyes to know what a what each other's looking at generally they can just tell by the direction the head of the other dog is facing Mm -hmm. but dogs know how to read where humans are looking by looking at the whites of our eyes because you don't you don't normally see the whites of dogs eyes this capacity they co-evolved developed with their long-term association with us and it's only for us that they have this capacity but you can't train a dog well enough to where when you look at what you're telling it to go fetch it knows what it's supposed to go Mm -hmm. fetch that's yeah we've had a long relationship with them and they've taught us a lot and we've had as well i mean they're the most unconditionally loving when you treat them with love and you guide them and raise them well they're the most unconditionally loving and loyal creatures we we were training and raising dogs long before this concept of the man training the beast and then Mm -hmm. becoming the lion yeah um long before we had this you know idea we were already doing it dude yeah but in the you know and we have gotten to the point where we train lions too that's freaking nuts and we put them on shows in the circus man how degrading (laughs) but that's the power man now i see to wield like this is where we get to we're able to respond we got to be responsible with our powers looking i thought making lions be caged and go on do stupid tricks and dances then you got their life experience you got people who have like mountain lions and cheetahs and like like panthers uh like i follow some people and they love that animal and that animal loves them but you watch there's you know certain relationships they have to have like you know i am cheetah and i am puma so gerda and messy these um yeah they they are not house cats but they're kind of house cats like they can't survive in the wild and in russia you can have a, a freaking bot or mountain lion and a cheetah <laughs> easier right. than Apparently you can texas have here too. hey well you know but more tigers in texas than uh the natural world well you know one of the stories that we archetypical archetypical stories that we have is you know the hero taming the beast it's no coincidence you know it's it's something that's in the nature of us to want to overcome this you know the beast and normally and of course we would apply it to our own mental state that's what we do and the earth's created that lives as earth extended out into the environment and we are earthlings and extended inward too you know the way we think of the universe is directly affected by how we interact and Mm. how the universe actually we get to write this story man we get to write this story and we humans are the pinnacle on this planet so that gives us the great response ability yeah, the ability, the ability to, respond. to respond, and what a great honor! Like, what a comp. You know, we can take responsibility as a compliment. Sure. You, know, you actually have the capacity to respond. You have the ability and to change the outcome of this story in any way that you see fit. As a species, if you put your minds to it, you can do it. We've proven it over and again to ourselves. Look at what we've created. I mean, 
does that have to, you know, I don't have to re reference it all, but, you know, satellites and smartphones and all of that. And the fact that we're live streaming right now, human capacity is amazing. So mm -hmm. what are we going to do with this great responsibility? We've got to be the stewards this world needs. We've got to steward with love and wisdom. And we need to redevelop wisdom schools and popularize them and start to plant them all over the world. Just start doing it to start doing it to start trying to find wisdom talk with other people or or, or check out john verveke's awakening from the meaning crisis and it's not something find wisdom like it's this thing that you can find and possess but it's like you know find the the virtual components and create this mechanism that you that that we call wisdom something we can all do together Wisdom isn't passive; it's active. It does. It does. It's things. a calling, man. It's it's a calling for our times too, and it's a calling to our higher capacities. Well, we've definitely forgotten about our monster, and it, it definitely let our monster have our, have its way with us. You know, yeah. of of late. You know, yeah. and well, no wonder you see so many monsters that but are. It's doing a very limited feeling now. capacity. You know, we can be so much more. Yeah, oh, yeah. We have this great capacity, and we don't have to completely get rid of it either. Virtue. You know, this idea yeah. of like, well, you just got to get rid of the bad things. It's like, no, those bad you things gotta actually... You got to integrate, incorporate the impulses in a healthy way. Yeah. In a way that you know is going to be good for one and all. Mm -hmm. And if we keep being guided by that simple unconditionality, that the consideration, the deep consideration, that that orientation to life, that love itself gives us. So love as an orientation, not as just some emotion, and encompasses so many emotions, but as an actual orientation. It's a way of being for us as humans to operate through. It's a love of life. It's a love of, it's that sense of wonder that for those things that you're greatly interested in when you light up, and that's a state that we can live in all the time, increasingly so. It can be cultivated. So we have all of these practices that we've developed, mindfulness, uh, meditation and contemplation and so on and this is what John Verveke is also teaching us about in this series uh, he rubs shoulders with many greats and he's learned from many greats and he's collated a masterwork lecture series here that's too long for any one academic school but it also is meant for all of humanity mm -hmm. it's awesome yeah so let's get back into this let's kick it so back into it this platonic division is echoed by Freud and his three layers of human psyche, superego, ego, and ed. We went through this. So man can learn, the lion can be trained, and the lion and the man together can address the monster, reduce the inner conflict. Less egocentric, puts you more in touch with reality. This then makes you better at picking up real patterns in the world. So this is feeding back in on itself. A skill that then can you can apply on yourself. Better knowledge of yourself means you can better teach the man, which better trains the lion, so on and so forth, etc., etc. Keeps feeding in on itself. Plato's famous myth or parable of the cave is a way of talking about all of this. Notice how self-transformation and getting more in contact with the world are interconnected. It's participatory knowing. I have to change myself in order to see the world and then the world changes so I can change myself. And the world discloses itself in a new way now. And so on and so forth. I'm omitting 
here. These are Mark's notes. Verveke's full description of Plato's parable, since it's fairly well known and numerous summaries are available. However, yeah. we, yeah. So, a quick summary. A bunch of guys sitting in a cave, looking at a wall. That has shadows cast upon it by a bunch of other guys that are standing in front of a fire with some cutouts. Somebody decides to get up and weasel his way out and around and past the fire and has this ongoing enlightenment process as he's crawling out of the hole where he, he becomes blind and it takes him a minute to reacclimate just to the dim light of the tunnel and mm-hmm. then eventually out and then expanding and being after going through like you know horrific i can't see anything then seeing what the world is and then goes back into the hole to tell his buddies can't see nothing completely blind bumbling around like a crazy madman yeah his and eyes then, haven't readjusted to and the then trying to tell the everybody about something that about it, this yeah about this there's this whole infinite expanse out there and it's beautiful and there's this light there's an ultimate light that's up high high up and you don't have the word for sky he's probably sounding mad to everyone in there because they've lived their whole lives they've only seen shadows upon a wall that that were being cast by puppets or something Mm -hmm. on the wall they have not seen actual reality so first they see the smoke or the fire that's casting the shadows and then Mm -hmm. they make their way out of the tunnel and they see this amazing thing he shows other ones they come back Mm -hmm. and then they get they try and free the others and then they kill them basically is the story yeah um but that's uh, you, you, you can relate to that. You know, how many times have you, you know, really learned something that is core fundamental to what you feel is reality, hmm. and then you go back and try to explain it to somebody, and you just sound like a bumbling lunatic. You know, and you're just <laughs> like, no, like I swear, like it's something. No, no, like sure. it's really a thing, and just to get ridiculed for it. Mm-hmm. Um. Is a but, common experience, but yeah. there might be a person who might come with you and or ultimately go killed, this like his boy Socrates was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so no, also you're gonna have a lot of lot of people that are gonna sure. come with you. First, you got to get them to look away from the wall. Mm-hmm. And you know, yes, yes, angle themselves ninety degrees. So now the wall and also the yeah, fire that was behind them and with wisdom and somehow find a way to compel them away from that direction and help them through the crazy realization of what the world actually is from this new vantage point with this all of this new information so plato's famous myth it's a way of talking about all of this notice how self-transformation and getting more in contact with the world are interconnected it's participatory knowing i have to change myself in order to see the world and then the world changes so i change myself the world discloses so on so, clearly enlightenment is not just an Eastern idea. This is a myth of enlightenment, of coming into the light. He's drawn towards this light at the end of the cave. He comes out as this blinding light that is impossible. The Greek word for this ascent is anagage, this coming up out of the tunnel of the darkness. Plato is describing an account of how you can make your lives rationally more meaningful. You can become more fully alive and at peace in conjunction with you becoming more and more in contact with the real patterns that make sense of reality. This is what Plato calls wisdom, a fullness of being. It also, it's also the same myth as the one depicted in The Matrix. This is a perennial myth of wisdom. This is a story that we've told over mm-hmm. and over and over again for a long time. Notice that reason and spirituality are not opposed to each other here. 
but are inseparably bound together. Neo becomes one with everything at the end. The one. He becomes the one at the end. And now he's in this super high state of flow and he knows exactly what everything... He's basically transcendent. He's omnipresent. So he just effortlessly goes through every single one of the agents at that point. What was once a challenge all of a sudden became effortless. Yeah. Oh, boy. The structural functional organization this that we learned from Verveke that makes the whole greater than the sum of its parts. How does this thing structurally and functionally organize to make itself a chair, for instance? It's why you can you can just glue random feathers together in the shape of wings and add feet and a beak and a body and tape it together and call it a bird, but bird nests emerges out of how a specific structure actually functions. Germans have a word for this, gestalt. It's for the Greeks, it's logos. You have some sense of what a bird is, what its logo is, but if asked what a bird is, you can't really say. Your grasp of what a bird is is intuitive. Logos isn't just how a form is integrated, it's how your mind can be integrated with it. Yeah, and it's not necessarily the feature list has has wings, has beak, has mm-hmm. feathers, you know. It's well, it's it's yes, a set of features, but also what does it do? What does all of that all together do? Mm-hmm. And then that is bird. Yeah, the birdness of a bird. Yeah. Because there's a bunch of different kinds of birds that I can say bird and you have enough of an over the structural functional organization of what bird is to kind of, you know, create one in your mind and Mm -hmm. think, oh, okay, bird. You know what a bird actually is. Or the big bird. So we can't just stick a bunch of feathers together and say that's a bird. You're like, nah, that's not a bird, man. Yeah. Or even, you know, like a a flying squirrel also kind of flies. Yeah. Or a bat. Bat is not bird. Bird has birdness. Bat has batness. They both fly. They both have wings. Um, they yeah, both eat insects like and whatever, mouse, but mouse with wings or a rat with wings. Yes, a, a, a yeah, a bat is more more has more mouseness than it does birdness. Therefore, For we sure call it bat. Bad. Um, bats are weird. Well, and you know, you could say like you could have all the accreditations and titles and everything like that, but if you don't actually do what those titles and all those things are. You know, you got the feature list, but you don't have it all. You're the, you know, some feathers and some wings stuck to a block of wood. Um, so there but is the a, overall picture, the overall thing, the gestalt of it, the logos of it, well, the there, greater, deeper sense of it. There seems to be a doing there. aspect, like an active doing aspect to the structural functional organization. Right. You know, the chair does something. If it does something else, now it's something else. The chair can be a table if you turn around and put something on it. It can be. Yeah. It can be a table. It can be, yeah, it can be a, a stool. It can be a lot of different things. Or it can just how you use be it, how in a way. You need to conceptualize <laughs> it in that moment. Yeah. It depends on what you're looking for mm-hmm. and how, what you need to do what you're trying to do yeah. in that moment. It's, it's funny. The brain will think in that way and it will see the chair now as a stool or yeah. as a table or as whatever it needs it to yeah. be. Yeah, so, yeah. So uh, I think that it's an more we're, we're inactive. Almost at the end of this one. You have some sense of what a bird is, what its logos is, but if asked what a bird is, you can't really say. Your grasp of what a bird is is intuitive. Logos isn't just how a form is integrated. It's how your mind can be integrated with it. 
It's almost like you'll know it when you see it. Yes. You can't quite describe it. Like, yeah. Completely, yeah, because it's not just you how you know it. something. It's also the pattern of what makes it be what it is. It's the stru- structural, functional organization of it. It's how the things fit together and actually create bird nests. When you really know something, you can conform to it. You can become like it in some important way. So more of like, so like um, an ideal, if conforming to the ideal of virtue, which we'll learn about here in the forthcoming episode. And becoming more of a uh, a craftsman of sorts, opposed to just explaining it. You know, like the say the guy who makes the chair really, really knows what it is to be the chair, to make the chair, to do the chair. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he can conform to that ideal chair potential when he's creating. With more capacity, because he just f- more fully knows the thing. And you'd call somebody like that a master, and it's 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 interesting that you know we use in Christianity. Um, we say masterful, think, or we say like you know like the God is the master, master of all things, of all things, yeah. as in God can form itself and create the like thing, an artistic but, uh, kind of mastery. Yeah, orchestrate. God knows the things because God is the things. <laughs> and structural things, functional and, organization yeah. is what makes the whole greater than the sum of mm. its parts yeah so when you're looking for the structural functional organization of a universe as a whole it's hard to conceptualize it without a generative sure well omnipresent we can... slash destructive divine being yeah. or trans some absolute always has been always will be force of some sort that is all one that everything else is a part of yep and you may not be able to explain it but you know it when you see it that's the thing <laughs> yeah and that we've had wisdom schools and religious systems trying to well dude you have a spiritual encounter and inspire and battle over for thousands of years yeah you, yeah you can't explain your spiritual encounter but if somebody else who has one they know what it feels like the, and it's funny we yeah right that's true we, we have so many cases of that cross-culturally mm-hmm. all over the world it's true. I, I forgot what I was going to say there. I had some inspiring thing that came to me there. Oh, well, it'll, it'll maybe come back later on. I like I like this idea of having a transcendent ideal for us as human beings and to be in a state of wonder. The structural, functional organization of the universe. What is that? Yeah. That is a question. That is a wonder. We haven't ever figured it out. We've tried to describe God, and we've been talking about God thousands of different ways. But it's funny, we always do come back to that root of our, love. Our, but our conception of God seems to be expanding yes. as we do this as well. So, like, you know, if, I, I believe in a generative, regenerative kind of concept of the God. The thing that Christians are pointing to is the same thing that the Buddhists were pointing to, that the Hindus were pointing to. That, that all the way back to the pagans who didn't have, the, say, the concept yes. of a, you know, um, I don't know, mo- monotheistic or pantheistic, but it was just nature. The nature is God's you pay homage to the great oaks because it's the greatest biggest thing in your area you you know you develop your worshipful practices that way and that was you know the base understanding of our concept of god and then you move it up into well now there's a god of the the great forests and yeah. the god of this but this idea this of this spirit river or yeah. and then it expands up to now there's set gods that are like you know you can say like you know nature is in one God, 
the ocean is in another god the rage of man is in another god and then you get to the point okay now gods are above in moral authority and there's a hierarchy mm. of gods and then it gets to the point of a monotheistic god there is the one thing the indescribable the thing that is above all things forever always because no matter how big you make it it always gets bigger right and yeah. it, it's like we're our conception of God is evolving with our ability to come to grasp with larger and larger and larger and larger um, sense of information yeah, that and, we're and, kind of and building upon. a larger universe, if you yes. will. Like, you know, our universe of understanding has become so go. much larger than it was 2000 years ago, mm -hmm. than it was 20,000 years ago, than it was. Um, and that increases the concept of God. If God is the, you know, the highest ultimate thing, direction if you will mm -hmm. to shoot towards and i like to think of that as positive and good um, if, it, if it gives us something to <laughs> aspire towards a higher sense an encapsulation an embodiment of love and we find that this is the one thing that they all all the great wisdom schools and religions seem to agree upon is the supreme unifying principle of life itself this thing that we call love, God and love being synonymous, I think this is a chord. It's a true chord that we can all agree on, that we can use as a guidestone. And we can further explicate and develop our conceptualization of this higher transcendence. But maybe we're at a point to where we can, considering the implications the looming myriad existential crises our species faces, uh, the many challenges that face us in the near future that we need to be able to overcome and we're not going to be able to unless mo many more of us are working together. And Perhaps these can be our our compass, compass as well. Yeah, and then, you know, the, the negative, horrible, awful things that we do and that are done to us as humans, we're, we're doing this to get over it, ultimately. We are our last greatest challenge. We rival nature at this point. You know, like We no are nature, but we rival every aspect of nature yes, on this planet. So now we have to be yeah. the thing that is are pu pushing us to evolve. We have the to next be thing stewards. To get past. So we, yeah. need, we just need to get over ourselves, guys. It's fine. <laughs> well, it's, it's exciting to realize that we are interconnected with everything yeah. and everyone around us. We are this one thing that exists as many at once. And we don't know why why that is happening, but we get to take part in it together. And yeah, what, what a wonder. What an exciting thing to be a part of. No, we're, we're the, the people alive right now are... You know, living in the rarest times, which is right now with the ability to transfer information like we do with this, you know, the sensibility and idea that people have a right to freedom to be able to, like, speak their mind. And not just in, you know, the United States, the pinnacle goal mm -hmm. for any developing country is, you know, to be able to state what they want openly, to be able to talk, to be able to think with yes. each other we that we just want to further that, optimize our systems of self-governance and that's a new concept in though, the best ways like, possible to be for the most for people to be free and you know like 
this idea of freedom too, to be able to be free to pursue these things is very new. Yes. Very new. And this is a turbulent time. Like, so we're in a time of reevaluation, big time. Everything's thrown up into the air, right? Like every single belief system of old is being tested and challenged. Yeah. And now we're at a point in time where we have so much, but it's not fulfilling. Yeah. Every aspect of our association with reality is being challenged. Yeah. It's like, you're free to have whatever you want. Well, crap. What do I want? It's a question. It's huge. Yeah. We've never been there in like to, no. to have so many options of what to have thrown in front of us. This is rare. And we're culturally oriented, and we've become so disconnected. Uh, I was visiting with my mother and grandmother just last night and talking with them about about this. Like we've all, you know, in our modern times here in the states, and I don't know how much it's like this and all over, you know, the rest of the world, but. I know it's become com- common in industrialized centers where people become separated from their families. Sure. And communities aren't as close as they were just 50 to 100 years ago. And we are much more optimal when, as societies when we're closely connected culturally and within our communities and within our families and within our friendships. And we've been bullshitted for so long in recent times like the last 100 years in particular ever since the advent of what became known as public relations but the systemized methodology of psychological operations on mass numbers of people for the benefit of wealthy interests or powerful government interests so commercial commerce and government started to use psychological methods that Freud was picking up on, like Edward Bernays, his nephew, mm-hmm. who oh, was yeah. the guy that basically invented modern-day PR. Uh, bullshit art, basically. The art of priming our primal urges to sell us shit that we don't need. But to not, not give... And not, it, so it's just the use mm. of... So there's nothing wrong, I think, with the market in general. It's how we as human beings use it and how can we as human beings become more generally um, acting from places of honor and nobility and virtue. So not to give the devil too much due, but, you know, say like, you know, the psychological, you know, medical or psychological experimentation that we've done on ourselves the past hundred or so years. A lot of times, yeah, there was a lot of awful, horrible mass manipulation of people to do things, but now we're at a point right now where we can read about that we can learn about it we can see the insights behind that and know how we can be manipulated so we're Hmm. even though there was a lot of bullshit that went on we can use Hmm. it in hindsight yeah for sure um and there's a lot of moral issues too like when it comes to like you know medical and psychological experimentation and weird fact about me i find that stuff really fascinating and like serial killers and you know crazy evil doctors and stuff like that um but i don't say we should go out and do th- things like that but the information is there and you can arm yourself against well people are fascinated or... with like crime and murder oh, mysteries sure. and stuff like that and I, just... I think all of that attraction to that is us realizing biologically as a species that you know we're, we're basically tuned to survival so we are attracted to playing through acting out scary situations because they're fun and exciting when you know and you're you're in a safe place, but it's also a way to interact with potentially dangerous 
dangerous moments. Well, and say like, you know, like looking into, you know, old research, like, you know, the psychological studies of like twin studies and other you know stuff like that and how how we figured out that babies need to be touched in order to like live mm-hmm. through a lot of bad stuff really happened it'd almost be kind of like a like a screw you to all the people that were treated so horribly not to use the useful parts and then the other useful parts which is don't ever do that again this don't sure. hold yourself to a higher standard and hold the people that are doing this stuff to a higher standard that's the other thing we learned we we're like what is really really wrong well, I think like, that's a bad, that's a hard lesson yeah, that we learned true. in these. Pa- I mean, Dude, we dropped a nuke and then we, uh, we dropped two and then, oh, and then, then we realized that's let really bad. Let's not do that. Corporations start opi- opioid ex- epidemics. Well, and then, and, you know what India had to deal with? Monsanto came in. We're like, we got a seed that will grow in the stuff if you put it in the ground, but then they put the stuff in the ground and it ruined the soil. <laughs> well, you know, this you know, is, this is known though. You can go on Wikipedia and look this but up. But it's all true and it's, um, it's disappointing, but. We can definitely we learn though turn to the dark side. Well, even the, we got to check ourselves like before the, we regularly wreck ourselves. Yeah, as, the as dust species. bowl when when we p- tilled up all the grasslands and kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it and then well we did it to ourselves. We learned. So what is so how how do we do this beyond a broader cultural conversation? And so we've got to get past the fighting debating part with our family and how friends do we, and just be like, yeah. okay, how do we figure this out together? What do you understand? What do you feel? about these different subjects of immediate interest to us together here in our local communities or our f- local families. And, okay, if we're talking about America at Thanksgiving or, mm-hmm. you know, in the holidays coming now, we're already past Thanksgiving, but, you know, we're in that time yeah. of year where everyone talks about this theme of the our winter feasting the festivals. Table. These are good times for us to hash these things out, but we sure. can take uh, um, orientation, a posture, in the way that we utilize our rhetoric and our speech to picture ourselves side by side trying to figure it out. So, okay, how do we understand this? How do we figure this out together? How do we determine what is true? We got to be able to challenge. We got to be able to challenge ourselves by looking at other sides of information, so we can help try to find ways of healthfully encouraging that. Yeah, how do those we, around how, us? How do we do this with the least amount of harm? But, because some some realizations do hurt. Yeah. Like we're growing creatures, like the spiel I just said we do like but how do we share this with the least amount of harm you know like Mm -hmm. how do you how do you tell somebody that you know uh, somebody they love just died you know like that's what that's that's something that's close to us because it's like you know we've thought about this it's like how do you break the news how do you do that well doctors have learned certain techniques in order to do that because they've dealt with it but like so how do we breach or how do we talk about these things with people without getting them into the flight panic fear mode. fight or flight mode because sure. that is harmful like in we, the sense yeah, of you without know, it harms the, the process of... and bringing up the, the survival sense because right now the pr has everybody tuned that when it comes to anything political we have all of our antenna mm. up for our survival yeah we really are not in a mode of deep consideration and trying to like mutually find conciliation and understanding together. You're really in a mode of like self-defense and offense. And I've got to prove my point. You got to understand this is true. And everyone that's on this side that believes this thing is stupid. And we get very blurry in our vision. We do that because we're amping ourselves up for potential violence. We we disagree so wholeheartedly that we're willing to totally separate from the other and turn on our fellow human being and use force of violence. 
actual physical stuff that we've learned within the past hundred or so years that we should with weapons that we have now capacities we have now and not just the nukes but the bio and chem stuff that is soon going to be accessible within five years just to anybody with a functional lab um well, I mean, it's going to be able to do earth decimating stuff, and that's coming with the new CRISPR tech that's coming up very soon. It's all frightful. Like very quickly, human beings have to tune in to one another. That's the actual fact of the matter. Mm-hmm. That's where we're at right now. The capacities we have to destroy ourselves are too great. The capacities for small groups of nihilists to get together and do extremely devastating things are going to become increasingly easy with technological improvement that's coming in very short time. Well, I guess um, we can maybe use some of the knowledge of, like, you know, how the the Mad Men, the Madison Avenue Ad Men. I just went um, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Yeah, but... Without without also adding... Sorry to cut you off there. Without, without also adding that we are able. So go on. Sorry, brother. Yeah. Um, well, we we know techniques in order to make things super salient like the Ma- the madison avenue ad men they did it to a point where they could sell anything to anybody now that we know that we can use those techniques you know the bullshit techniques if you will to actually intentionally do things that are good and i don't mean this in like a lying kind of way i mean it how do you make something that's good for you super salient well how do you make food vegetables that normally don't taste very good but are really good for you super good where you're TLC, like yeah baby Farmer market, farmers markets can start having people go door to door to door with their fruits and vegetables so that people can eat on their doorstep and try it out and then start ordering from them weekly deliveries. And there's a lot of communities starting to do well, that. Well, okay, there's so a lot of ways not, not to go too far into the vegetables, into it, but my my point, just, yeah, but that's that's great. I like that. But well, one so one way I've seen people do it is you have things like merch that shirts that say things on them. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to make it salient is like an actual product that you can sell to somebody but another way to do it is to have events that 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 draw build hype in a certain way and and you can also then cross network into like you know the artist realm the music realm other things like that and i think at least the kind of person i am and what i'm good at that's my realm of things is you know like creating an environment that is you know looks cool sounds cool you know, I'm a musician, but I also like to make things look good on a shoestring budget. Um, but that so creating events that build hype, because like, say, like Comic-Con, other, you know, yeah, people, you know, they dress up and do their thing. But it's really the hype of the experience of the event. And I think mm-hmm. if we can, you know, like this podcast is an event mm-hmm. and the more it becomes more successful, the hype gets bigger for it. Sure. And, and, you know, like, you know, watching people who go to clinics and interview or not interviews, but, you know, places where people go to talk about that, that's event. How do we make that? And I'm not saying it's boring, but how do we make that not boring for people who aren't initiated? How do you make it exciting for people who aren't initiated? Oh, God, yeah. You know, these are things to think about because like learning this stuff and learning to find wisdom is the first step is the important step. But then how do you ensnare other people? Well, Socrates walked around and went into the market and said crazy things like, oh, look at all this stuff I don't need. And, you know, started interacting. And then the event was getting together. But, um, well, uh, the the holiday celebra- celebrations are also events mm-hmm. where we do things. So philosophy. We needed together like a, a ritualized again. events. Ritualized events you know, coming and back. Not and like, you see you know, people but, reach into these things naturally, too. Sure, yeah. They will start to recapitulate themselves. And parties in parties that aren't slightly just... Slightly new and upgraded forms. Each okay. revolution through 
we're learning deep stuff really fast yeah. right now as a species. It's a turbulent time, guys, but can we can surf this wave. And you're going to see it increasingly as we become more self-reflective and more, not to be cliche, but loving towards our neighbors, genuinely here for one another within our families and working in our lives with the intention to help humans unite and become more symbiotic and be able to ride out the coming potentially coming turbulent storms um oh the storm is already here that we can all plug into and in all kinds of beautiful small ways in our lives just sure by creating a more enriched well it's not big huge state of being grand events that happen that make up this universe it's it's our own inner revolutions that become larger communal revolutions that we share in philosophical fellowship and then i like that idea of of building the hype of events and because these these oh you don't want to miss this guys we got to get more and more down into the nitty-gritty of how do we help popularize this in our culture Mm -hmm. again regardless of one's religious or political affiliation yeah there is an intentionality that you see a lot of people just naturally fall into. They just kind of skirt above this bullshit that's going on around us. And they're just like, they're loving in a very genuine and authentic way. They're doing things or they're very keyed into really cool movements that are exciting, that are, that give you a sense of hope that are very life enriching and meaningful to be a part of and to witness. And it's, you know, that's, I think that's the name of the game right now. So we got to figure out, like, well, we got to sh- bring back what's hip, yeah, for and it, real. It shouldn't like be what what and 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 continue on that idea of okay, what is the most? Well, I think what's hip right now is places where people can actually get together and talk together um, because this but there's a need just talking that, right? over yeah. online and and all this stuff isn't working for us anymore. I can no, I can feel yeah. like people have been so separated from covid like you know the chance if they can get sit, sit down and talk with somebody and you know it's like you know it's it's a lot and i think the actually bringing everything back and using these technologies that we have now to actually bring us back to each Start other with in one, person one friend yeah, yeah one friend and then build it up to two maybe yeah. and just let it let it grow if it, if you feel that it can actually grow let it grow and find a good coffee but, find a good coffee shop and mm-hmm. take it over and you know just show up on a day and and test out and find ways of talking about these kinds of things that don't we be af- somehow always found ourselves getting into in our younger years yeah. these those questioning when you're hanging out with your friends and you have enough time to talk for a long time and somehow it gets onto these really deep life subjects and and don't be afraid to go deep that we should yeah we're, we it seems like a lot of times we should allow ourselves are more chances to do that yeah we're skirting the depths and not yeah. wanting to go deep and, and there's nothing really to be afraid of you lose a sense of where you're at you lose a sense of orientation and, and yeah but you know, you know you're, you're floating you're there a cosmic and... being floating here in the midst of an infinite galaxy in the midst of more infinite universe and, and d- don't be afraid to broach the deep either because like a lot of people want to go deep but don't necessarily have the personality type to be like hey like this you know this thing that we're in but they have the personality type to be like well okay you're in there yeah i'm gonna go over there okay and then they go in you know know. trust that we have the potential because we've proven it a thousand times over to one another and our and our wider species and our survival on this planet long term we've proven our capacity 
and we just have to ratchet up that capacity for the good for the love of one and all together and popularize that quick get down with it and see where it takes us but really commit to it and find something that you're you're able to attend to because not to be preaching not to be teaching but this is this is the great calling you you don't have to you can joyfully support these loving movements around the world and still be a part of them in your own daily way in life. Well, hey, as long we're all invited into this, though. If if that's, it, that's, if it just helps one person, like if it just helps you, there's a invisible viewer, there's just a slim you. Chance well, we can make it. We that's, have the internet. That's we worth have the it. ability to rapidly disseminate information and rapidly educate and in wise inform one another and inspire one another. So I think that, and I see a lot of people. Of course, we we naturally are. We want to survive. We are. You're seeing people come out all of, out of the woodwork all over the place that are very inspiring, very uplifting. And we don't want to just survive. Artists. We want to thrive. We want to thrive. And we have that capacity. We are able. And to help other life thrive. Well, yeah. You and know. then we've earned our way off. Then we've earned our, our right to be able to perhaps responsibly explore and we, steward after other life that we come into in the universe. Well, we interact positively, constructively with you know once we've as much as possible. Develop the complete ability to respond to all of this, then perhaps we'll develop the ability to respond to other, like you know, going to other planets and other things like that. So the ability to respond. It to, feels like it's like a stopgap gap that the universe has built in. Yeah, if you can't get off your own rock, like if you, you can't, can't get, get off if you can't rock, get these past, we don't through. want you going and genociding other planets, or we don't want you to go other planets and then you know like turn it's into some weird hard. mutant crazy. You have to learn horrible. to actually be symbiotic with with one yeah. another, and if you get to the point of technological complexity and capacity that you can kill yourself and your yeah. host planet, that's the, it's very that's, likely that you're dangerous. Well, to that's yourself. The, that's the first step, though. The ability to kill yourself and your host planet is the first step to, to gaining the wisdom of how to get off. Sure, the capacity because then you know your ability wisdom. to bullshit yourself to kill you know to kill your own self. We're like, we are there. What a trippy time to be alive in, as we funky hominids speaking. Yeah, we're such strange apes. Like we stopped growing fur on most of ourselves, but we still have like you got a bunch of first sprouting out the top, yeah, I'm, top I'm, of your I'm, head I'm like pretty fuzzy a broccoli. Yeah. And we're 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 we got these little noses and we got these really interesting eyes like side by side that look that are really good at aiming. We're very goal driven. It's like our brain has conformed to how we see, which just helps us. We stand up tall so we can see far, but it, we are certainly totally exposed. All of our vital organs are exposed. Our flesh is not thick. It's not thick hide. It's not shielded in any way, naturally. Well, but not. we do shield it because we're smart and we're tool-using animals, and then suddenly we take over the world because yeah, well, we could so... We're, and we're culturally adaptive. We actually team up together and use sticks. We don't just use sticks. We team up, and we strategically use sticks and train dogs, and then we can take over any part place in the in the world. We can take on any predator. Yeah, and I think a component to the, the Adam and Eve story, you know, the apple of knowledge and then covering themselves up and... You know, when they when the term nakedness is used, it's not just naked like, oh, no, my pee pee's showing, but also like, oh, no, all my vulnerable bits and my vulner- and not just physical vulnerability, but mental vulnerability and realizing truly how 
naked and open to the harshness of reality is. We realized time. Yeah, we realized that we could die and that we could do things wrong. And it was like Pandora's box was opened. But, you know, that was the first step. I don't see the Adam and Eve story as a bad thing. Um, I'm, it's just I'm, when we became if, if so it happened the way it did, I'm glad it did because we it, started measuring ourselves psychologically with other beings because yeah. we developed arts of measurement and language. We started thinking in language. Yeah. Suddenly, we weren't so interconnected in our way that we were embodied in reality with the world. Well, we we, we became so beyond animal with one another. We now we became now we became egoistic. In yeah, fact. The, the human. Yeah, all state. the dangers around us that could be p- potential threats of death or ruin or shame or hurt anything that would mess with our ability to survive comfortably in our environments were seen as threats to this separate sense of self that we started to accumulate and become attached to and idealize in our minds we became so full that we thought for thousands of years that we were this jumble of ideas that we've collected over time this personage this sense of self and this jumble of ways and habits and uh, capacities and ways of being um, they're actually are they're they're what we get to shine through, and they're beautiful. The only problem is that we think that we are that idea, and that idea can be offended. But no, you're just the thing that's aware of the offense. You're the thing that offense becomes apparent to. You're just this awareness, and what is that? That awareness is always just watching. It's not offended by anything. It notices offense. It notices. When depression appears in your body, who does it appear to? That question, that self-inquiry asks us. When anxiety appears, when happiness appears, when anything appears, any sound, sight, sensation, idea, conception, belief, attachment, ideal, expectation, all of these things arise and appear to us in our awareness and what is that awareness? Just to wander into it. And then to fill your heart with love and gratitude for all the good things and the capacity to be able to be loving and change and help people feel better. And just to have that capacity, what a gift. And what a wonder it is to be alive as a living, self-reflective animal that was born of stardust and is now looking back at the stars from whence it came and, and wondering again, well, that how may, do we... We're much more than just like the animate, the animal. We're not mm-hmm. just uh, like self-movers anymore. We have now externalized that. And I think that's, you know, so that's why we see ourselves as separate as the humans, or separate from the animals. Is, say in the, the story of Eden, we... Gave, we were given the chance to name the animals mm-hmm. but it wasn't until we were cast out that we really started naming ourselves and figuring it out mm. that's the step mm. into the start of this whole process is the coming out of just being a part being a part of the animals and part of the nature and living symbiotic with this but the first moment of stepping aside to be able to then to look back at something and then to see more of what reality is because reality is not the garden of eden reality is both also beautiful and harsh yeah. uh both terrific and terrible mm-hmm. both yes. you know like all of this and you know the true beauty of 
you know that was a huge is, awakening for us as a species it was terrifying for mm-hmm. us it made us close into ourselves and become super guarded and in and it's it's okay because it was useful in a lot of ways for us. But now we're at, we're, become, we're at the next we're step, also, I think. We remain very social and super social and culturally adaptive beings. Yeah, and and I, so I think we're at the point now where we're... We're at a point of a revolution. Well, we're we're equivalent to that, what the Adam and Eve story is trying to talk about with our yeah. cognitive abilities and how we see ourselves in the world. We're at the next state of that, and we've had many teach- teachers and what Plato described with the three leading just, up to that, yeah, and then the three uh, aspects mm-hmm. as well with Plato. That also is very informative. With that's something else that tells us how we can we can uh, give ourselves a sense of. I'm trying to say stability. Mm. Basically, in these times, we can train the lion-hearted aspect of ourselves to be able to take on the monster and control those urges and use them rationally but we have to be brave enough to be able to face that monster we need the honor of a lion to be able to face that monster well then i think the the modern i won't say modern but the retellings that we're doing like here and elsewhere and that we're all seeming to start going back to like we're re-embracing these techniques ideas schools of thought that have served us in the past instead of like you know the the modern trend is everything's modern screw the past we know better now but there's kind of a shift going like oh you know some of this old knowledge is really important very you know and people are you know more and more people are i won't say becoming religious but more on the religious end of spirituality opposed to the just the I have incense and I'm spiritual, but actually like, no, what is religion trying to help with what mm-hmm. set, what sets of virtues is it giving me? To, why, why is spirituality you know, important yeah. for us as humans at all? And it's not just a yeah. play thing or something to give us a sense of escape or, or even just consolation. It's certainly a deep, deep relationship that we have the opportunity to be a part of that is ever growing ever deepening it's very challenging there's a lot of blood and guts as well it's not you know self-inquiry and learning about ourselves knowing thyself that's a harsh process that's hard to go through our egos hate it and they fight back and they scramble and, and sometimes they re- they'll and convince you that they're dead they're like oh yeah i'm dead i'm dead i'm dead and, and that thinking mind roots is that ongoing inner monologue that is so addictive to us and is also just constantly coming back um, to relinquish, to help that part of us relinquish its fear so that it calms enough for us to utilize it in a more rational manner. That can only be done through love and attention, being able to look at yourself unconditionally as we wish to be able to look at those in the world around us, at least our loved ones. But w- that unconditional capacity, I think, is going to help us with every friggin' problem that we have. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's the highest level of wisdom. It's actually what ga- grants us wisdom. As Buddha actually said, or at least this is attributed, 
that wisdom or uh, compassion does not come through wisdom, but wisdom comes through compassion. The compassionate, deeply considerate capacity that humans have when they're in a loving orientation. But one has to be very self-assured and comfortable with death and all of that to be comfortable with truly being unconditionally loving. Because be you gotta be able with to, being uncomfortable. You've got to be able to transcend the ego's um, monster needs and compulsions entirely um, to be so free. Mm-hmm. And that is that is a capacity that we have and that's something that we can eternally uh, uh, really cultivate. Because um, there's always going to be new challenges. Well, as there should. Yeah, uh, it would be a terribly boring existence yeah. if everything was just perfect and we yeah. knew everything. But it's like we're growing back into God, even if there ever wasn't a God. Certainly, we're growing into the capacity, um, perhaps oh. through artificial intelligence and also just through the ongoing process of evolution through self-conscious, self-aware species such as ourselves. What? It does become increasingly more what we conceptualize as this idea of God, something super transcendent super able to interact with the beyond just a planet but even galactically you know or you know your sci-fi theme um and Enter i think the next <laughs> sci-fi story here. the next stage that i see us really getting into is going to be you know say from the adam and eve to this is creating something that rivals us yeah. Um, because, yeah, cause, you know, the ultimate act of God is create, creating right. this kind of thing. And then if we can create something that is much like us, then what are we going to have to do? What are the next set of insights we're going to have to use when coming to terms with the universe that has things that can be infinitely smarter than you are, or, you know, that are completely alien in, of intelligence, but still made from our intelligence, and that's right. going to change our relationship to the universe. Now we have a, a small inkling taste of what it is to be God. Hmm. Whereas before we were just waking up to what it is to be animal yeah. and rising above that. What is it going to be when we, you know, yeah, right. Partic- particularly we're doing things with, you know, gen- genetics and other things it's like as that big too. A jump as when we develop, that's why Daniel Schmachtenberger says the shout out to Daniel Schmachtenberger of the Consilience project. That's why he describes this story of the shift that human beings have to undertake to survive um, civilizational collapse mm-hmm. in coming times and shift into a higher order, higher state of being, maybe a next stage of human evolution, so to speak, is going to be as great as our shift from be- becoming tool-using animals, essentially. Mm-hmm. Verveke describes it as this bigger revolution as the Bronze Age, the the initial axial age and revolution that occurred after was a response to it. And now we're in another time where there's a potential for an axial revolution to occur. And we get to help perhaps midwife that in as Plato would say. And, but that idea, like that shift is that great because we are going from the idea of just being super animal to being super human to being super something else what is that super yeah. organism that we become next well particularly uh, if we start like you know merging merging with the tech 
Yeah, which and the AI becomes a tool. And that's that's one argument that some transhumanists utilize. That that that's the only way to counter the dangerous potential of AI getting out of our control and destroying us. Yeah. If we create something that's more powerful than I us. still think, I still think, and but I'll argue I, to this day. I think it's going to be. A I think AI between Terrans and Cosmos. I, yeah, basically, I, I think the AI is going to. I won't say be benevolent, but have a lot more love and that's understanding the hope, of the good. I like portion. that idea. Well, because they say well. The AIs, they see all the negative stuff they put, you know, we have on the internet and all this horrible stuff. But also, like, with the way algorithms can tell how you feel in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. imagine something smart enough to be like, oh, man. I've like, had all those, story well, ideas All those like selfish this. selfies that you take pictures of, you know, some people would say, oh, the AI just sees humans as narcissistic. No, right. an AI would see, oh, that person's hurting and wants communication with people. Yeah. Because I think there's far more it good to, to people all the than there is evil. that ever has been. All the psychological literature, and most all of, of our good. mystical wisdom, we love all of our and puppies insights and, and understandings and interactions. It would see love and consider deep wisdom as our highest capacity. It would have learned to be... I like that idea. I have this sci-fi idea. Somebody run with this and make your own version of it. But you have a bunch of competing AIs in some future, sci-fi future, and uh, some kind of maybe dystopian scenario. And they're, you know, maybe the U.S. has a super powerful AI or multiple AIs from many corporations or maybe like some bad guys here or there. All interacting and competing with one another and threatening the survival of the human species and the, and the, and the planet. And then some benevolent AI, Buddha, AI comes about in some kid's basement that his father is like working on, working for one of these high-level corporations and has access to them. Well, that's one thing that scares me, though, is not the naturally generated AI from the ghost bits of the interwebs and all that stuff. It's the intentionally malicious. We've played with this idea a lot sci-fi, I think, already, but I like it. It's a fun trope, and it's a good thing to angle ourselves towards technologically because the ethics of AI are very important right now well dude i, I don't know i just saw a, a, an article headline about san francisco giving uh, these guys kill authority to cop bots and it's just like we're talking about this now should we give robots the ability to kill humans we are talking about this now guys this, yes, this is where we're at no, we're, yeah we're no we're 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 in the sci-fi movie we are we're, yeah we're yeah, in the beginning we're, of terminator right now do, 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 don't have to go that way, but it could jump, jump, actually jump, jump, go jump. that way. And our military-industrial complex loves its business of war. And so, you know, robots fighting. Uh, lazy politicians that want an easy way to get power, too, <laughs> you know? It's happening. All right, before we get canceled. It's happening. <laughs> and, yeah, we, Talk we all, about we've got to learn robots. to use these tools responsibly. Certainly, there's self-defense situations that happen around the world that can be debated and uh, understood. But, gosh darn it, without the wisdom with which to responsibly wield these weapons, we will indeed yeah, have, have trouble staying on our surfboards. Uh, yeah, you know, so, so what whatever we we're doing here on Spaceship Earth, we've got to get Earth. it together. And, Did uh, you ever see... Um, it's going to be a joyful, beautiful, exuberant experience space. when we really lean into it. You ever see Space 99, uh, 1999? I think that's what it's called. That old uh, like 70s sci-fi where they had a, a moon base and some aliens knocked it out of Earth, Earth's orbit and took it away. So basically they're riding like the moon through space. No. Yeah, so it's <laughs> like moon shit. That's trippy. Yeah, I think it's like Space 1999, what they thought the year 1999 Funny, would be back like in the... Yeah, it was yes. Oh, uh, yeah. 1999 uh, used to sound futuristic. Yeah. 
I'm old enough to have experienced that. Yeah. Oh no, Y2K. Uh, turn off your toasters; they'll revolt. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know. A two's going to crash the system. They forgot to <laughs> consider the fact that you'd have to go to four digits in the data. Oh, uh, I remember when it turned over, and everybody at the party that I was at when That's I was a, a funny problem. You're only going to have one system species if you do it right. Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, you're going to develop computers, but that century that you developed computers, you didn't think that you need four digits there in the code mm-hmm. instead of two for the year that you're going by just like we say it's 2022 or we say 22 sometimes when we write the date down we are always doing that in the 19s 1900s and uh yeah we just got into the habit so yeah a bunch of major industries were super worried because someone spun up the idea that everything might crash and of course all you have to do is just update your code and your yeah but this was before but a lot of systems were dependent there's a lot of yeah. dumb computers that weren't interconnected very yeah. well or at, or at all whereas now they could just and put so a they're worried what is going to happen yeah. like it was just going to go to zero it's yeah, going to start rolls over, over and that's and exactly have, what yeah. everything did <laughs> we were all right we survived y2k we also survived 2012, the Mayan prophecy. But did we really, X. though? But like, did we really? We're stuff in the started getting right really now. weird. I think with every decision, we're in another and then we new kept alter, turning alter, on that large alternate Hadrian universe. Clock. And we get yeah, to choose exactly. through our reality tunnel which one we want to be in at any given time. So you can always shift out of the land of Mordor back into the land of potential. My friends, I believe. Yeah, the, well, the maybe poten- it's a hope, it's an idea. We don't know. The potential for everything is 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 there. It's just a multiverse is a legitimate theory. As, as atoms go somewhere, as beings with psyche, self movers, we can move or make things more, like have a, a more of a potential of happening or less. Everything's just potential, like the, the potential of me having a tree fall on me. It's pretty low right now, but I can make that higher if I go stand under a tree that my buddy's cutting down. Hmm. Oh, you know, getting struck by lightning is a one in a whatever event. Yes, well, stand on top of a really big pole during a uh, lightning storm. Your chances go up. So it's like Franklin found out. As self flying a kite in a storm with a key. What's going on here? Um, Electricity. Yeah. um, But as, you know, the lodestone. We have psyche, the thing that allows us to be self-movers and move other things. So we are we are potential generators and aggregators and concentrators. Like the potential for us going to the moon was slim to none, but we made it happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Back when people were just looking at it and being like, oh, this isn't just some flat disc. This is actually this like round ball We went in from space. Franklin lighting himself on fire. With a lightning bolt from a kite to Edison and the bulb to... Well, then Tesla doing whatever Tesla did that made people go... (laughs) DC, baby. No, AC. AC, right? AC, 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 not DC. AC, DC. Well, he, you know, his whole thing was resonance, and that's the world we live in right now. Every, like... His this is, so works off of radio resonance, resonant frequency. And electricity that, that was up. working the same way. That's that was a wild. Yeah. And even the resonance of something shaking, and you know, he, he, I think he was really functioning on like you know what was the base matter of the universe. They and could do that. That, that would still work. We just have to implement it safely, and you know, we didn't know what we're working with. Yeah. It it can be dangerous, which Edison had fun 
well, trying I t- to prove. So Tesla warned us. He said, speaking of like electricity and electrons and what makes up electrons, they're alive. They just need to be shielded, though. They live. Yeah. You know, and, you know, who knows? There might be. Tesla was a trip. The guy was a genius. Uh, I he think he, yeah, I, that, you know, if if we were the type to worship um, scientific, mechanically minded people, he would probably be a prophet of What does AC stand for? Uh, um, alternating current. Alternating instead of direct. Yeah, so ins- alternating instead cells. of the move of potential going like this, it just wiggles in place. It's not actually flowing. It's just yeah. resonating back and forth between two polarities. Yeah. Like atoms seem to, seem to do somehow. Well, like it's actually... Mirror. It's kind of that doing coexists at once. This, but you know, for sake of argument, it's just AC's doing this hmm. and DC's electric universe. Yeah. All right. Well, all of you little electric beings out there, we're gonna wind it down. I think it's feeling like end of podcast time. Yeah, we yeah. made two thirty-eight. We got through two episodes. We're making some progress here. Mm. So what 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 are we on now then? We just finished uh, episode Plato in his cave five or six, or no five? Yeah, yeah. So we're on to episode six next. Yes, indeed. Good deal. Yeah, yeah. Trying to get the mouse over here so I can see that. Let's go back. I want to see where episode six is again. I'm trying to re- get my brain functioning here because I can't remember. Here it is. Aristotle, Kant, and evolution. Yes. Mm, it just yes. starts getting better and better. Parts of what make your life meaningful. Part of what makes your life meaningful is that you have cultivated character that allows you to actualize your potential. You get the word potential from Aristotle. You've created a virtual engine that regulates. You have to find out next time on Actualize Podcast, or you can actually go and watch John Verbeek's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis anytime on YouTube. It's available. And it, you can also listen to it in podcast form. It's on Spotify and other places. And it's uh, it's awesome. Mm. Definitely worth a good listen. Most deaf. Most deaf indeed. Well, fam, it's been good. We love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in and for supporting the show. Your likes and subscribes are the best. And I greatly appreciate and encourage anyone out there that hasn't liked or subscribed to do so and help us reach more people and you know if you like this share it with a friend or a fam and we will continue to be doing this thing here for as long as we can keep it up and uh so yeah thank you guys anything else to say there peace and hippie grease indeed all right guys love y'all we'll talk to you soon